uh, YouTube live stream link, the Zoom webinar link. There is a Zoom audio only connection. And we are also being carried uh, by Northborough Cable Access Television tonight on government channels. Uh, I can never get these right, so I won't try. Um, if you have a Verizon or a Spectrum, you know what channel to watch. Uh, ensuring public access does not ensure public participation unless such participation is required by law. This meeting will feature public comment. I'd like to now confirm the uh, presence of the members of the board. Members, when I call your name, please unmute and respond in the affirmative. I am Jason Perot, Chairman. Leslie Rattan, Vice Chair. Present. Scott Rogers, Clerk. Present. Julianne Hirsch, Member. Present. And Kristen Wickstead, Member. Present. Uh, thank you. Uh, next, I'd like to confirm the connectivity of staff members. Staff members, when I call your name, please unmute and respond in the affirmative. Uh, Town Administrator, John Coderre. Present. Assistant Town Administrator, Becca Meekins. Present. Public Works Director, Scott Charpentier. Present. Uh, Finance Director, Jason Little. Present. Police Chief, William Liver. Present. And Fire Chief and our Zoom host for the evening, David Parenti. Uh, present. Great, thank you all. Uh, ground rules for the meeting. As chair, I will invite each speaker applicant on the agenda to make their presentation or speak to their application. Uh, each speaker will be asked to mute their phone or computer when not speaking. Uh, and when speaking, speak clearly and in a way that helps generate accurate meeting minutes. Those responding will be asked to wait until the floor is yielded to them by the chair. Speakers who wish to respond to comments of others, please request to do so through the chair and each vote taken by the board will be conducted by roll call. Uh, when we reach the public comment section um, or public hearing section, uh, I'll go over the uh, procedure for <coughs> attendees to uh, participate. I think that uh, takes care of the preliminaries. Uh, first item on the agenda is the approval of the March 14, 2022 meeting minutes. Do I have a motion? Yes, Mr. Chair. I move we vote to approve the March 14th, 2022 meeting minutes as amended. Second. Uh, I have the motion by Scott Rogers, seconded by Leslie Rutan. I'll just note that uh, the draft minutes that were circulated were reviewed by the board members in advance and certain uh, corrections were already conveyed to our executive admin, uh, Diane Wackel, who provided an update to the board prior to this meeting which is why they're being referred to as amended. Uh, any discussion? Seeing none, this is a roll call vote. Kristen Wickstead? Aye. Julianne Hirsch? Aye. Scott Rogers? Aye. Leslie Rutan? Aye. And I, Jason Perot, vote aye. Minutes are approved unanimously. And Chief, would you like to bring in our guests for the evening? They are on the way. And uh, before we begin, I will uh, announce the agenda item. Waiting for our 
all of our participants to uh, be connected here. And I think we have everybody. Thank you very much. Uh, this item on the agenda passed the hour of 7 p.m. We have a discussion regarding Northborough's legislative priorities. And for this session, we have our legislative delegation, Senator James Eldridge, Senator Harriet Chandler, State Representative Daniel Gregoire, and State Representative Meg Kilcoyne. I wanna thank you all for being here this evening uh, for our annual review of what Northborough wants and what we hope you can provide. Um, I think you have received copies of the um, legislative priorities uh, uh, letter that we typically uh, send to uh, identify those legislative priorities and to also provide the specific rationale for, um, uh, for Northborough's perspective on those particular uh, requests. Excuse yes, me. I, I received it. I, I apologize, but I have not received it. It may have gotten stuck somewhere between myself and, and my staff, but I have not received one yet. If you have oh, okay. perhaps email to me, I would appreciate it. Yes, we will certainly uh, send that along. Uh, let me ask the other members, uh, have you, uh, uh, Senator Eldridge, have you received it? Yes, I have, thank you. Okay, and uh, Representative Gregoire and Representative Kilcoyne. Jason, we ha I have the letter. You do, okay, very good. Uh, three out of four and uh, Senator Chandler, uh, I'm sure there isn't a lot in that letter that isn't already familiar to you from past uh, meetings that we've uh, we've had. Uh, a lot of familiar content in there. Um, at this point, I guess, uh, uh, are there any initial comments? I mean, I, I, I suppose, let me ask first uh, Town Minister John Coderre. John, could you just re review the highlights of the uh, letter for everyone? Uh, sure, I'd be happy to do that. In fact, I can, uh... I can screen share and just bring the letter up so people can can everyone can follow along if that uh, that, that works. That would be right. perfect. Yes, please. All right. All right. Just trying to move a couple things around so I can uh, navigate here. So let me. Uh, come back up so so this is the annual letter that we send that we send it to the governor and we copy our legislative delegation on it it's really an attempt for the for all of the boards committees and uh departments of the town to put a cohesive um statement together summarized uh in terms of things that are most important to us as a as a community and um we try not to pepper you with you know hundreds of different pieces of legislation we know that there's there's literally hundreds, if not thousands, of, of legislation that gets filed every year. So what we're trying to do is focus on really uh, our top uh, two or three key priorities, and then um, and then a few other smaller pieces of legislation or initiatives that we're hoping to draw your attention to that uh, that you would be in support of. So um, the first top priority, and this should be no surprise to any of you, you're all veterans to this uh, to this format, is uh, Chapter 90. Uh, so chapter 90 is the uh, roadway program. Uh, this is uh, funding from the state that allows the town to uh, make repairs to our roads, our sidewalks, uh, infrastructure. And uh, one of the things that we've asked for uh, year upon year is a statewide allocation of $300 million for chapter 90. Uh, it has historically, since fiscal 2012, been $200 million. 
Um, that gives the town of Northboro about $500,000 to spend on their roads, which is obviously uh, not a significant amount and certainly uh, is, uh, is drastically um, underfunding uh, infrastructure investment. Now we have uh, on our own, the town of Northboro has been investing at least $1.1 million in uh, including the chapter 90 allocation. If the statewide allocation were to move to 300 million, uh, it, would, it would mean about another $300,000 for the town. Uh, one point that uh, I just wanna stress is that uh, as we included in our letter, if chapter 90 isn't increased, uh, as I said, it's been 200 million statewide since fiscal 12. Uh, after you adjust for inflation, it means that the support, the state support for our local road projects would actually fall by over 42% after you adjust uh, for inflation. So obviously, um, you know, $500,000 from uh, fiscal 12 is not going to buy you the same amount of roadway work in fiscal 2023. And I'm just going to stroll down. Uh, we go to great lengths, explain the state of our roads, the planning process that the town has gone through. And I'm just going to focus on the chart right here. So this chart shows three funding uh, sources or three funding scenarios, rather. We have a comprehensive pavement management plan in Northboro. Every single road in our town has been rated. We know, uh, we know exactly the shape it's in. We know what it costs to, uh, to fix it. And so uh, we put together a funding uh, scenario to communicate to our local uh, boards and committees what's needed. And you can see here, uh, there's three scenarios. So the, the gray line is basically where we've been. So fiscal, starting in fiscal 15, we've been putting $1.1 million into our roadway maintenance. And it's a combination about $500,000 in chapter 90 from the state. Uh, there's about $300,000 that goes, uh, that's concluded in the DPW budget and another $300,000 that comes out of our capital plan. But if you look at the three funding scenarios, the red line is if we only invest the 500,000 we get from the state in chapter 90. The green line, which barely maintains things, is 800,000. And 1.1 million is that slightly uphill um, trajectory that we're showing you there. So that's contingent upon all of the other infrastructure. This isn't money for sidewalks or for culverts. So reality is what you've seen, if you look here, fiscal 19, 20, and 21, we've had to make investments in culverts and uh, sidewalks and a few other things. It's, so even with $1.1 million, this is the actual that we've been able to sustain with 1.1 million. We desperately, desperately need additional assistance from the state in chapter 90. Now I know the governor had uh, filed a $2.4 billion supplemental for 22. Um, and in that was another $100,000 in Chapter 90. It's my understanding that the House and the Senate have declined to take that up. So that's one of the things that we'd like to discuss with you. Um, we need it in 2022. We also need it in fiscal 2023. Now there is, uh, I understand the governor has $100 million for a pothole repair uh, a program that I believe is passing through the House and the Senate. That will be very helpful to us. The bottom line is we desperately need a permanent recurring increase in Chapter 90 if we're able to plan and do anything other than just keep just barely keeping our roads 
at the condition that they're in right now. So, uh, Mr. Chairman, I don't know if you would like me to go through the entire, uh, all the high points through the letter or kind of take it each section uh, at a time. Uh, I think uh, we can probably take each section. I mean, this is, uh, yeah, why don't we um, have the uh, legislators, uh, you know, provide their feedback on this particular item uh, since it okay. is our highest priority and, and significant concern that yeah. uh, increases in funding don't seem to so, be forthcoming. The, so the two the two critical pieces here that we'd like to discuss with you is that the support of the governor's uh, 100 million in fiscal 2022 supplemental and uh, your support for another 100 million statewide in fiscal 2023. Um, I, I wouldn't mind uh, stepping up here for a minute. I wanted to say uh, the house is actually taking out the chapter 90 bond this week. My committee reported it out this afternoon. So we'll be bringing it to the floor this week at the $200 million level. Um, to your point, obviously, that we've been having this conversation on for several years now, the additional 100 million is not off the table at this juncture. The chairman of the Joint Committee on Transportation are interested in an update of the formula before we add additional funds to that, given the fact that the formula is from 1972. It's very outdated and, and at the current formula, I think probably North Grove um, experiences some, you know, level of penalization and I am interested in in redoing the formula before we continue to add money into it and to try to get everybody um, back up and running. I do also want to take the opportunity to compliment you, John, and the board on the pavement management plan. Uh, last summer, I undertook an effort to meet with very nearly all of my colleagues in anticipation of all of this federal infrastructure money that's coming in, some of which we will be spending through um, an infrastructure bond bill and a general government bond bill, which also came through my committee. Um, in the coming weeks, we expect to start uh, sort of doling out some of those funds. Um, but in the meetings with some of my colleagues, I was taken aback by how poorly the towns and cities they represent are managed. And, uh, you know, if I have money for you, you're going to be able to just go to the list and say, okay, it's going to go to the top five priorities. And there are so many communities in the Commonwealth that are not managed like that. And it, they wouldn't know what to do with the money. And therefore, they'll probably not have as much access to it as, as folks who are prepared for it will. So I do want to compliment you on that. And I, and I, like I said, I do believe that if we are able to have some success in changing the chapter 90 funding formula, that the additional $100 million to put you up to 300 that you see this year is still on the table. And I do see potential for us getting that money out to the communities as well. Great, uh, thank you, Danielle. Um, I'll, I'll just add to that. I, Senator Eldridge, yeah. so thank you to the chair and members of the, all the members of the select board and um, John. And again, I echo Representative Gregoire's comments about how well-prepared um, John is with this letter and the board and all their, their input. Um, really helpful information to, to uh, hear from <clears throat> Rep. Gregoire given you know, her leadership position as, as chair bonding on the House side. So I, I would echo that as well, is that um, you know, I think the, the Senate will take up the same Chapter 90 uh, bill at the, the $200 million level, but I hope we can do more in some of those other vehicles coming up and um, so I fully support that and um, appreciate the notation around the FY23 budget as well. So uh, support that and thanks for highlighting that. 
I would agree with what my colleague, Senator Eldridge has just said. He is very knowledgeable on the subject and um, I think we are both in total agreement and we'll do whatever we can to see it hopefully get to the $300 million level. Thank you, and Senators. Yeah, Meg? Sorry to interrupt. I, and also um, just briefly want to uh, apologize. I had some technical difficulties in the, in the beginning here, but I think we are, are, are uh, back on track. But um, I will just echo what my colleagues in the House and Senate said. Um, you know, we, we, I think, thanks to your diligence and John, you especially, thanks to your hard work over the years, you know, you've been able to present um, a very uh, straightforward and informative uh, example of how this money impacts the town and the community, which makes our ability to to relay that to our colleagues at the um, at the state house much better. So I just again want to thank you for taking the time to put this information together. And and you know we definitely hear the concerns surrounding Chapter ninety and how it impacts the town and its possible future plans. And so something we certainly will be taking a strong look at. Thank you very much. I'm um, just uh, through the chair, if I may, I'm just sure curious, John. is there any uh, any other plans? Uh, I know that uh, the governor's supplemental of chapter 90 for 2022, we were very, very thrilled to hear that come through, but it wasn't supported in the House or the Senate. I'm just curious if there's anything planned for a fiscal 22 supplemental. So again, John, the reason that the House and the Senate declined to include that is with the anticipation that we are going to address the issues within the formula first and then do the money at a later date once the formula has been changed. Okay. So there's still a chance for a uh, fiscal 22 supplemental to Chapter 90? Yes. Okay, that's great to hear. Appreciate that. Excellent. Thank you, John. Uh, I think we're ready to move to the next item, which is okay. uh, concerns local aid increases. And for this, I'd like to also uh, introduce or, or mention that we have with us uh, Superintendent of Schools, Greg Martineau, who uh, um, will have some uh, tie-in uh, for these in particular. Uh, John, do you want to lead it? Sure. So uh, the second top priority uh, is, uh, is just general uh, state aid coming into the community. And it comes in a number of forms. Um, the first one I just wanted to, to touch upon uh, is unrestricted general government aid. So it's um, for a town like Northboro, 73% um, of our, our state aid comes in the form of Chapter 70 educational assistance. And uh, we're a minimum aid community, which means right now we're looking at about $30 a student. So uh, overall, that means that under the governor's uh, budget, and over really, frankly, the last several years, uh, we're looking at about a 1% increase in our, in our state aid in general. Um, I draw your attention to uh, unrestricted general government aid because uh, according to the revenue um, consensus hearing that took place on December 20th uh, at the state, uh, there was agreed upon that, uh, that the state's revenues are gonna increase 2.7%. Now, I'm sure you've seen this uh, from the MMA, uh, one of the concerns is that essentially um, the 2.7% really undervalues what should be coming to us in terms of an increase uh, because uh, if you base it off of where the budget was on July 1, it should be a 7.3% increase. But obviously, as the revenues did better, 
the, uh, the, the, the mark changed. And so we're not talking about an increase over where the state revenues were on July 1. We're talking where they were, I believe, in January. And so there's a very strong, compelling argument that unrestricted general government aid, which is only about 22% of what we get in state aid, um, should be at 7.3 instead of, um, instead of uh, 2.7. Uh, but again, just stepping back in the, in the larger picture, uh, we're only looking at a 1% increase in state aid. And so when you look at the fact that it takes about a 35 or 4% increase in order to maintain current level services, and we've only seen a, a fraction of that over the years uh, in state aid, it means that uh, state aid is is slipping off as a as a um, a revenue source for us, and I'm going to come down to this chart here. So as I noted, 73% uh, of aid is 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 uh, education aid. Um, uh, with the Student Opportunity Act, I know that there's tremendous amounts of funding that's going into education, and we also recognize that uh, from a policy standpoint. It makes sense that the um, uh, communities with a more disadvantaged uh, students would receive more aid. That's, uh, that's a logical uh, approach. The issue for us is that uh, over time, state aid as a percentage of our, our revenues has just been in a, in a free, fall, free fall decline. And so um, uh, right now, if you look down at the chart that I'm showing, you see that, uh, you know, I'll, I'll go all the way back in 2000 and fiscal 2003, state aid was 13.1% of our operating budget. If you fast forward now, it's about 8.4. And next year, it's, it's, it's scheduled to go down to 7.9. So the, the issue that we face is, you know, that the state revenues are up since fiscal 20 by uh, over 20%. Local revenues are not. The state revenues flex so much more with, uh, with the economy, with capital gains and income tax. We're really locked into 80% of our budget is, is properties tax, real estate tax. Um, and then the second largest category is usually around roughly 10% of state aid. So what's happening over time is all the pressure is on the local taxes. And, uh, and where the state is seeing significant revenue growth we're looking for a stronger partnership in the sharing of, of that revenue. Uh, the alternative, I mean, you can see this trend. This isn't just a one or two year cycle. As I said, it goes all the way back to 2003, where we were at 13% uh, of the operating budget. And so um, the hope is that we'd see a stronger partnership there in, in terms of um, the sharing of the revenues. And we do appreciate the support that uh, our delegation has had in, uh, in the unrestricted general government aid matching, you know, the consensus uh, number at the state level. However, like I said, it's only 22%. Um, the whole mix in terms of what we have to work with though, under the governor's budget right now is 1%, 1.03% is what we're looking at. So, so in terms of direct state aid, that's our, our compelling uh, argument. In addition to our direct state aid, um, we have, I mentioned the Student Opportunity Act. Again, the minimum aid is $30 per student. Um, and we're one of the 136 communities that's a minimum aid only community. And so uh, the MMA in the town of Northboro is asking 
we understand that a disproportionate amount of new revenues are gonna go to the districts that have the higher need, but we all have a need and we'd like to see and, and ask uh, your support to get that $30 per student minimum aid commitment uh, to the MMA's call for $100 per student. Uh, absent that, we're gonna see a 1% in our state aid, maybe a, a little bit more than that after it goes through the House and the Senate, but the, it's not gonna be anything meaningful and, and we're going to see a continual slippage and more pressure on the, the local taxes. So that's the, that's the request. Um, you all have supported in the past uh, pushing, I know Senator Chandler, this is a big one for you and you've always been a, a strong advocate for uh, special education circuit breaker funding uh, as, as well as most of our delegation, I believe everybody has supported uh, getting that to full funding and regional transportation. We were so disheartened to see the governor's budget, not only not fully fund regional transportation, but actually cut it. So we're hoping that the legislature, uh, the House and the Senate will restore and fully fund regional transportation. So those are the, those are the uh, categories of the general um, state aid and the specific accounts that are really critical to us. And obviously, the special education and regional transportation is uh, is absolutely important to the uh, to the operations of the school department. So that's the second uh, big ask in terms of our legislative priorities. And I know I'd the like superintendent to, uh, is here as well. Yes, I was just going to invite uh, Superintendent Martineau if he'd like to uh, add his uh, perspective. So I'll just echo um, John Cadere's remarks. I think the one thing I would add is that the foundation budget, the educational funding formula does have a, an inflation cap of, I believe it's 4.5%. And also part of our advocacy is making sure that that cap is lifted and you use an actual inflation rate when ca calculating chapter 70. Um, and I concur with uh, John, I think increasing minimum aid to $100 per student, um, fully funding circuit breaker, I think it's, um, it's $45 million short from fully funded, being fully funded in the governor's budget and then regional transportation, I think also um, it's important to note that the estimates which are drawn uh, for this FY23 budget um, do reflect some of the drop in transportation spending as a result of remote learning. Um, and then the only last thing I would add that is not included in this letter was the, um, the district. We have learned that the Department of Officer Food and Nutrition Programs um, that Congress is not extending universal free meals past June 30th. Um, this is deeply concerning. And any advocacy you can uh, promote in terms of having the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education subsidize meals for our families uh, for another year would be greatly appreciated. We're very concerned about the escalated uh, costs of school lunches and commodities. Um, and again, anything that you can do to support uh, free meals for our students for another year um, is, is greatly appreciated. Thank you, Superintendent. Uh, legislators, uh, be happy to hear your uh, responses. Uh, let me begin with uh, Senator Chandler. Thank you. I've already had my meeting, by the way, with uh, our chair of Ways and Means, and I have asked for most of these things. One of these, you pass over this quickly, and you shouldn't pass over it quickly when you start talking about the regional transportation issue. 
you should be talking about the fact and you should be reminding us constantly, throwing it in our faces, if you will, that one of the reasons that most communities got involved with regional transportation, with regional school systems, uh, was the fact they were promised full coverage of their transportation needs. Uh, we haven't kept our promise. Uh, and you, you must continue to remind us that we promised you something and we have not kept our promise. Uh, I, so I, that's the first thing I would say. Uh, the second thing is that this, the fact that the feds aren't going to be extending school lunches uh, and the free foods beyond uh, June is, is, is a disaster in, in many communities. I don't think it's quite as much of a disaster in, in, in Northboro, but it's a disaster nonetheless for those people who need it. It's, it is a disaster. And, uh, but in some school systems, it, 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 it's, I, this is their meal. This is their only meal they can be assured of. Uh, I think you have to remind us of that. Um, and uh, I mean, I don't think you're asking for too much that you ask that your minimum aid go up to $100 per pupil. Uh, we, we owe you that. This is our future. This is our, these are our children. And if we don't remember that our children are our future, uh, then we have, we have no right to be leaders in, in, in this commonwealth. Thank you, Senator Chandler. Uh, Senator Eldridge. Great. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chair. And uh, again, thanks to John and thank you, Superintendent Arno. Appreciate raising these points. And I think it's, I could just say that the, the whole, you know, Northboro legislative delegation supports um, each of these items. Um, I, I did have my meeting with uh, Senate Ways and Means Chair Rodericks last week. So did specifically talk about the minimum aid because to John's point, um, you know, met many communities, um, you know, don't benefit significantly from the Student Opportunity Act. And so that minimum aid is really the only path to, um, you know, most or many suburban school districts from getting additional education funding. So um, I mentioned that. Um, on the unrestricted general government aid, I, I, I do feel optimistic we would be better than governor's budget. I, I, I think the thing I would just raise up to be upfront is that I, I think the challenge on, on meeting the inflation goals is, you know, unfortunately we have other areas of the budget where there are even, you know, bigger increases, including healthcare. And so just being upfront about it is I think that's the challenge to, to reach uh, the ideal goal. But I, I think certainly you will see a, a better number on UGA uh, compared to the governor's numbers. And then I appreciate the superintendent uh, mentioning the uh, pre-meals program that, that because of Congress not, not renewing it, uh, what existed during the pandemic, that, that that's a, a real concern for uh, low-income families and, and poor students. So there, as I'm sure you know, there, there is the, the bill, uh, the free school meals, school meals bill, excuse me, that's been filed and, and at least on the Senate side, my sense is there is going to be a push to add that to the Senate budget. I think it's about $100 million, and you know, we certainly have a lot of revenue, so I hope we can reach that. So I'm certainly advocating for it and really appreciate your, your focus on that because um, I know President Gregoire and I had the chance to go to the Marlboro uh, Public Schools just to see their 
uh, free lunch and free meals program is very, very impressive that, you know, no questions asked, no, no barriers. So that, that should be the case for, for all schools. So thanks for mentioning that and I'll be advocating for that as well. Thank you, Senator Eldridge. Uh, Representative Gregoire, any comment? Sure, I just wanna to add to, uh, John, I certainly understand the concern over the governor's budget proposal. I want to uh, rest or have you rest assured that, that that is merely a proposal. The house proposal for our budget will drop on Wednesday, April 13th. And historically, the further we get into the year and the clearer we are on our revenue picture, the more those numbers go up as this process goes forward. So it's highly likely that the house will include significant addition in dollars to a lot of the areas which you're discussing. And then in this, when the budget then passes to the Senate at the first week of May, it's likely that they'll add even further additional revenue. So the governor's budget, while I certainly understand you would look at it and be concerned. I, I want to make sure that we are telling you that our numbers will be higher, especially with the crazy revenue that we're seeing that was highly unanticipated. And it's, we don't, you know, it's coming from everywhere, basically it's, you know, um, so, um, and then I would second what Senator Eldridge said about the food insecurity issue and about the about the school meals and I, Representative Kilcoyne, I was going to speak to the fact that she attended a briefing on it that occurred at the, uh, a couple of weeks ago. So it is something that is already on the minds and hearts of legislators. And there, uh, we actually have a food insecurity caucus in the in the House in the Senate. And um, it is something that they are already working on diligently to ensure that that issue is met in the throughout the process of this budget. Because, like Senator Eldridge said, we obviously don't want healthy kids who, can, uh, you know, hungry kids who can't perform in school. And as Senator Chandler said too, some of these kids, it's the only food that they have access to. So we want to ensure that that source of food for them continues. Thank you, uh, Representative Gregoire and uh, Representative Kilcoyne. Thank you. Um, I won't, you know, belabor the points my colleagues already made. Just, um, you know, did want to echo, as uh, Chair Gregoire said, you know, our budget will likely look quite different than than uh, Governor Baker's. So um, I would hope to see some higher numbers there. Um, I also appreciate you pointing out the importance of circuit breaker funding, along with the regional transportation reimbursement funding. Um, you know, those are issues even before I was elected, I, we understand are critical to ensuring our schools have the resources needed to adequately provide for education. In my district alone, um, you know, obviously, obviously it includes Algonquin, but also includes Tahanto, uh, Neshoba, and Wachusett. So many of my towns, with the exception of one, are part of regional school districts and where transportation funding is critical. So it's been something that even, you know, throughout my, even though I've only had one official budget cycle under my belt as a rep, um, you know, we made sure that we're not just working on these in silos. We've worked with both our colleagues, other colleagues in the House and Senate that also have regional schools to make sure that there is a loud contingent of legislators that are making sure school systems um, like Northwest South, Southboro Algonquin have that reimbursement funding and that we can try to get it as, at 100% or as close as humanly possible. Um, and then just quickly, as uh, Rep. Gregoire said, there has already been alarm bells being raised on Beacon Hill um, about the issue of, of the school lunch program. 
Um, so, and so it's certainly something that I think we're trying to, you know, be, make sure that we stay on top of um, and that we do what we can to sound the alarm and make sure kids have the resources they need. And um, I do believe uh, the food insecure, the food security caucus did cite this as I think one of their biggest priorities a few weeks ago, um, which I think all of us here are a part of, but it is certainly something that we understand if a kid is hungry, they are not going to be able to learn. So it's, it's morally imperative that we make sure that we are able to make sure kids have access to those help to those lunches. Um, so I think that covers it for, for me. Uh, thank you. Uh, the next uh, items in our list, John, these are kind of our secondary priorities. Yeah, so uh, as will. I said, so you know, do you we, want to walk through those? Yeah, we don't want to, we don't want to kill you, but there's a, a handful of maybe a, a half a dozen things that we'd like you to, to keep in mind and hopefully you, you'll feel comfortable supporting. Uh, these are kind of our secondary priorities, but still very important to the town. Uh, the first is funding for environmental and climate related infrastructure needs. Uh, I note that the governor included in his $2.4 billion supplemental bond, uh, supplemental bill, another $150 million uh, for the Municipal Vulnerability Preparedness Grant Program. So Northboro is an MVP town. We have gone through that planning process. Uh, it's my understanding, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, that that did not survive uh, going through the House and the Senate. So we're hopeful that you have some other great plans with regard to uh, environmental uh, climate related infrastructure needs. Uh, we'd be love to hear about tonight. Um, the uh, flexibility that we've seen around uh, the ability for remote participation has been very popular. And uh, uh, we're looking for your support of House Bill 4367 and Senate Bill uh, 2554 that would continue to extend uh, those provisions that have been very, um, uh, like I said, very well received. Right now, they're temporarily extended through July of this year, and um, you know we'd like to see the, those um, those that ability to meet remotely and hold public hearings remotely continue. Um, this one here, uh, Representative Gregoire and I have had uh, pretty extensive discussions regarding. Um, there's a uh, House uh, House Bill um, uh, 3221 and Senate Bill 2457. These would create a municipal and public safety building authority, similar to the MSBA, the Massachusetts School Building Authority. And one of the things that we struggle with is, uh, you know, we can get state assistance to build a library or a school, uh, but our biggest project that is on deck right now, we'll go to town meeting next year, is going to be a new fire station. There's no, there's no um, funding grant program at the state level for a fire station, which is absolutely a critical piece. So this, uh, this legislation would, would create a, a public building uh, authority for non-school buildings. And uh, we very much would like to see something like that come through. Uh, our, our, our fire station right now is uh, somewhere around $16 million uh, estimated. Uh, and that has, I hate to think what the escalation on that has been in the last year or so, but uh, it's going to have a significant tax impact. Um, we're asking support for uh, the uh, streaming entertainment uh, operators use of public way. As you know, as more people cut the cord, the funding and support of our local access will continue to diminish. Uh, there's two, uh, two bills, a bill in the House and the Senate that would uh, create a funding source from streaming uh, services. 
that would help to, to maintain funding for our local access. Uh, promoting equity and diversity in uh, towns. We're hoping that under the community compact program, um, Northboro has uh, created a diversity inclusion and equity committee. Uh, they issued a report to the board uh, and there are some things in there uh, that uh, would require or recommend uh, further planning. Uh, so we'd love to see a community compact uh, option for uh, best practices and diversity and equity and diversity inclusion. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna talk much about OPEB. I know there's nothing on deck right now, but that's, we always want to mention that opposition to unfunded mandates and um, modernization to the public construction laws. I'll just I don't want to belabor this point. Uh, we've we've talked about this uh, many times in terms of the cost of doing construction projects in um, in Massachusetts and paling prevailing wage laws. Um, we just got quotes for um, painting of the police station. One was by a local painter uh, who quoted 13,000 and change. And then we got prevailing wage quotes and they were over $50,000 to paint the police station. We have just, it would be helpful to exempt projects $100,000 or less so we could use local vendors, uh, local businesses, um, and that's our, our pitch. So um, I don't know if we want to pause and we can talk about any of these. Uh, yes, uh, why don't we uh, cycle through once again and feel free uh, uh, to comment <laughs> on whichever uh, of these uh, topics have caught your interest. I'll begin again with uh, Senator Chandler. Well, let me, I'd like to start at the end actually. So if you would move it to the, the very last one. I think this is the first time we've talked about uh, $100,000 or less removed from prevailing wage. Am I right, John? Well, we actually, uh, we submitted, our delegation submitted special legislation, a home rule petition uh, to exempt 50,000 right. uh, and, uh, and it never made it out of the rules committee. So well, um. it, it kind of makes a lot of sense, I think. I mean, I've seen I've seen your your feelings on the subject, uh, shall we say, grow, and in terms of the realities of of, of working within a certain level of, of um, a certain level, um, I I think it will be interesting to see whether uh, that could be we can do anything about this. Uh, you talk about the excessively high public construction costs within the Commonwealth. I think we're aware of this. Um, could you move your move it back up again? Sure. <laughs> Sorry. <clears throat> and I know how you feel about unfunded mandates. So I've heard about it for a lot of years. So I, I know very much. You should check out the auditor's report that just came out about unfunded mandates, how much it's hurting us right now. Well, I'm sure, I, you've, I, seen, I'm sure you've seen the press release. I won't I, belabor the point. I, I mean, you were ahead of your time. What can I say? Uh, way ahead of your time, but you're ahead of your time about most things. So I, I, I appreciate that. The promoting equity and diversity in cities and towns, I think is an absolutely critical. We're seeing in every city and town that we, that we represent. <coughs> and the tensions that develop around it uh, are causing all kinds of problems. One more up. Uh, and the cable television. <coughs> I find this to be 
as you probably know, I, I have a television show on cable access television. It's everybody's television program, basically. Anybody can have, their, have a show. It's a wonderful thing. And it may be a way of, uh, of, of, of basically uh, doing more with it. Uh, having at, at the, it may be a way of making up the, the bulk of the annual budget uh, of the, for the cable television. I would hate to see anything happen to make cable access television go out of business. So I, um, I, I basically, I have no problem. Of course, you know, this is the last time I will be before you in this, in this role. So whatever I'm saying, I'm saying without having to really be concerned about uh, making sure it happens. Although I am very- So you can tell us what you really think now. I'm telling you what I really think. I, I agree with most of what you're doing here, but- Don't worry, uh, Senator Eldridge is gonna take care of all this now. He will, he definitely <laughs> will. Uh, but he's not gonna be around either, remember? He's, he's, he's still around, he's just not gonna be our direct senator, but he can still carry the water. Your direct senator, but so you won't have Senator Eldridge to deal with in the future, which is too bad because I think he adds a sense of, of balance to to everyone here and I, I think it's it's a positive thing uh, we I can say this for I think for our delegation uh, I don't personally have any other uh, town with a city manager or administrator or a select board that is as competent it, as, as as hardworking as you folks are and uh, it has been a pleasure over the many years to deal with you because you are so ahead of the game, so ahead of the game. So I, I commend you for where you are and what you've done and you keep us on our toes and I will miss you. So thank you. Thank you very much, Senator Chandler for those very kind words. We'll be throwing some kind words uh, back at you before we're done this evening. Uh, next up, uh, Senator Eldridge, uh, any particular you. items you'd like to comment on? Sure. Yeah, and I, I um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of content here, so I, I won't um, repeat what uh, Senator Chandler said. But uh, some of the items that also stood out is um, to me on. I appreciate you pointing out on the municipal vulnerability preparedness grants that those were not in the sub budget, so that's very popular. I I, I think I was at one of the MVP meetings early on in, in Northboro. So Northboro's done a great job with that. So um, that's something perhaps we can uh, get into the FY23 budget because that's been very, very popular and very helpful for climate resiliency. I would note in, in the ARPA budget, we, we did provide money generally for climate resiliency. So hopefully that at least that's a, a another grant that maybe Northboro could take a look at. On the um, allowing continued uh, hybrid or, or remote meetings. Yes, we, we did extend that to, to July in the sub budget. And I, I think there's a growing consensus that we wanna make that permanent, uh, but we haven't yet had that full debate. So I, I expect that would happen between now and July, um, just, just so that we're ready for the next year, but, but hybrid or remote just been very popular and at least from a lot of the towns I represent uh, is seen as a way to increase participation uh, for, for people. Uh, it's better to participate from remote. Um, 
And the last thing I'll just highlight the really appreciate you lifting up the more funding for DEIC, Diversity, Equity, Inclusion Committees. Uh, great that Northborough has done that. Many of my communities have. And I, and I think it's, it's a really great point is that it's a, it's a point that unless the state provides you know, a grant program or reliable revenue, a lot of these efforts you know, might not be as ambitious or be as followed through as if they didn't have uh, state funding. So completely support that and, and uh, something I hadn't thought about as far as the funding. So I, I will look into that, but really appreciate Northrow's commitment to diversity, inclusion and equity. And I will look into that as well. And thanks very much. Thank you, Senator Eldridge. Uh, Representative Gregoire. Sure. So just a couple of things I'll pinpoint um, in this list. Uh, the cable TV some, is something we've been hearing about from a lot of communities like North Road here from West Boulder, but for some regularity, and I, I do um, want to work towards a solution as far as that goes. Uh, with regard to both the fire station issue and some of the other infrastructure, climate-related, and some of those other things, we have an unprecedented opportunity in front of us with the um, bipartisan infrastructure bill that was passed by the Congress and signed by the president last fall. And currently in front of my committee, we have a general government bond bill that's about $5 billion that is taking projects off the capital improvement plan and moving some of those projects forward. We haven't passed it out of the house yet. We're still doing some tweaking of the language. Uh, and additionally, the governor filed another bond bill uh, recently that will be, it's been put before the Joint Committee on Transportation, but I believe we're going to have a joint bonding and transportation hearing on this additional $10 billion of money, largely uh, taking from some of that, some of the federal money that we have in front of us. So I think it's an opportunity to discuss some of these things that you and I have discussed, John, about the, about the municipal buildings. And and I think more importantly, it's a direct opportunity for North Road to have access to some of the funds that it needs regarding green infrastructure and uh, roads and bridges and uh, traditional building infrastructure. Um, and I feel like I spend all of my life talking about fire stations because Marlboro is also going through the same process right now. And I'm actually hopping on their city council meeting at eight o'clock to, uh, to just to watch, uh, but uh, there, there were some fireworks at a committee meeting last week, so I wanna see it through. Um, so certainly something that we're aware of and you know, this federal money, it's a once in a lifetime infusion of, of, of dollars and it's giving us an opportunity to fundamentally change the way we govern and the way we invest in our communities and your voice being so loud and clear and direct about what it is that would help Northborough is going to be part of that conversation as far as I'm concerned. So. Again, you know, I, I think also Senator Chandler said it, we just appreciate how well organized you are. And we are in the next couple of months before we get to the end of this legislative session on July 31st, when you lose the entire delegation, except for Representative Kilcoin, um, we are going to be uh, trying to direct some funds towards the town of Northborough to carry out all of the plans that you have so thoughtfully worked on and put in place. Thank oh, you. and then just one more yes. thing too, as far as the uh, COVID uh, extension of COVID, we the House and the Senate have both agreed on um, legislation surrounding the no excuse vote by mail and some of the other provisions that we were put in place during the pandemic. 
and there is a conference committee that has been appointed has not yet met but it is i think the goal of both the house and the senate to have those extensions in place permanently in time for this year's september 6th state primary so i think there's a a pretty serious commitment from both the house and the senate to get to yes on figuring out how to permanently extend those covid voting protocols that we put in place great thank you very much representative gregoire and Representative Kilcoyne. I apologize for all the formality here. I'm trying with screen sharing, you can't see the participants. I'm trying to help out the person who will be writing the minutes of this based on the uh, audio and video to track who's uh, who's speaking throughout. So I, I apologize oh. if it seems a little formal. I totally uh, appreciate that. And um, don't, don't feel the need to apologize. I felt badly earlier because um, I, I feel like I don't know where to direct my eyes when I'm doing these types of Zoom meetings, even though it's been two years. So if I look like I'm staring off to the side for those watching, I, I assure you I'm not, but just trying to keep my screen in place. Um, but I, I don't want to, you know, spend too much time going over what I think my colleagues really adequately, I think, addressed, you know, John, like, this has been, I know, the chorus of the night, but the way that this is presented to us, um, the way that you were, and I, I say this to the board as well, um, I should thank the entire town for being able to present us with really straightforward, informative, and detailed um, uh, priorities that really help us do the work uh, far more easily. And John, I know you and I have had conversations regarding the fire station and the, the expense that it will be for the town. Um, you know, I, I think that like uh, Representative Gregoire said, there are some, I think, really uh, significant opportunities coming forward that hopefully we can try to find a way to direct some resources towards that. Uh, but long term, I think it is obviously, you know, the, our public infrastructure is something that, it, you know, every municipality or city needs, and many of those are aging. And, and you know, I, I, I think that your, your recognition that there, this is a need that throughout the Commonwealth is important is a good one. Um, I, I think that regarding some of the flexibility, uh, the flexibility, flexibility in municipal government um, that you addressed to, I know I've been hearing from many of the local, you know, local uh, officials in various communities that there certainly were some um, benefits to some of the remote options that were provided for the pandemic on how you conduct businesses. Um, I know that some of the bills that were addressing making some of these things permanent in terms of um, changing town meaning law are still before the municipalities committee. Um, so I know that they're, they're taking a look at these things now. Um, but I think until then, you know, where we're still a little bit uncertain where we're how far, you know, where we are in terms of the pandemic, how far we are um, in terms of being able to return to normal, those things are still up in the air. So we are, you know, we have extended it, I believe, in the sub till July. And we're going to continue having those conversations of what may be something worth making permanent, um, because I know that we've seen greater participation, even on our end, on some of the ways that we've, um, you know, used technology to continue the work of governance throughout the pandemic. Um, and I don't want to go through everything on this list, because I know you guys have a lot to go through, but Certainly on the other items that you listed, um, we will, uh, you know, we will definitely take these into consideration as we go into the next uh, back half of the session. And if there, you know, I'm always open to having more conversations about these or keeping you guys informed of uh, as we go forward on, on some of these pieces. And I think that some of these were also in your letter last year that you gave to us. Is that correct? 
Yes, there there are some recurring themes from year to year. <laughs> yeah, um, and so, but again, I think that this really is is helpful to have this, especially as we're going to see a lot of activity in the next six months to the end of the year. Um, and you know, the way that these things are timed, we'll be able to hopefully continuing having these conversations, you know, as we move forward and, and, and seeing what we can do to help you guys do your job better. Okay. Thank you, Representative Kilcoin. So, uh, I was going to say, John, is there uh, any more you, uh, yes, uh, by May. So just one, one thing we did different this year that we haven't done before is so one of the things that keeps coming up uh, here is that uh, we've seen in a lot of supplemental budgets and legislation a tremendous amount of earmarks being put out there for you know, neighboring communities and so a lot of the things that uh, we have requested um, but for whatever reason we have been unable to get an earmark or dedicated funding for and so uh, I know that from time to time, opportunities come up for you, uh, legislators, uh, to put earmarks in on behalf of communities. And we have communicated those. I know I've communicated those uh, to you, um, but uh, for whatever reason, Northboro has not seen any success lately. So just for the sake of making sure that uh, in communicating to you, that you know exactly if you have an opportunity for earmarks, here's some ideas for you. Uh, fire station building project. We have a water meter transmitter replacement. Uh, this is goes to our ability to, you know, again, um, track the uh, water uh, resources for the community. Uh, we've seen a lot of earmarks for culvert replacement. We have culvert needs all over town. The latest one uh, is uh, Lincoln Street near the near the school. Um, we've seen a lot of earmarks for uh, reservoir dam for dam removals. Um, we have a dam uh, that uh, we are designing and permitting right now for removal, and it's estimated to cost $900,000. Now, we're obviously looking for grants and we'll pursue grants, but we've been seeing communities getting just straight up earmarks to take care of these things. Um, and we have a SCADA system, which is uh, a remote monitoring for our water and sewer uh, program. That's uh, $345,000. And then um, last but not least, uh, we just completed, just like you saw for our pavement management plan, we have inventoried and assessed every existing sidewalk in the town of Northborough. We are a complete streets community, which means we are currently working on the prioritization plan, which talks about how you can close gaps between sidewalks, improve um, uh, bike lanes, travel, things of that nature. But right now we know based on our assessment that we have $1.5 million backlog in sidewalk maintenance that needs to be done. So just like you saw in the pavement management, um, we need to be spending uh, minimally $200,000 a year just on sidewalks in addition to what we spend on roads. But preferably if we wanna make any progress at all, 300,000 a year on sidewalks just to start getting on a good uphill trend. That's not building new sidewalks. This is just taking care of the ones that we have. So just infrastructure in general, and again, Chapter 90 funds would assist with this, as well as complete street grants, which we're applying for. Um, but uh, I'm not sure why we haven't had any success with earmarks. It seems like most of the communities around us have done a little bit better than we have. So just want to make sure that you have these. 
And if there's an opportunity for you to submit for them, we would love for you to advocate for us on, on these. And with that, I'm gonna stop sharing my screen so we can actually see everybody. And, uh, <laughs> and through the chair, I can happy to answer any questions anybody may have. Thank you, John. I would just add that um, I think uh, as you yourselves have commented, um, uh, town of Northborough is just very well managed uh, in terms of its finances uh, and administration. And uh, to whatever extent uh, we can benefit from uh, some funding assistance for, for the several things that we've outlined here tonight, you can be assured that that funding will be used uh, effectively and efficiently and responsibly. Um, I just wanna give a great deal of credit to the town administrator and his staff. Uh, as board members here, we operate at kind of the high level policy uh, making level. Uh, and uh, it's the town administrator and staff who are uh, providing all of the data and detail and analysis and rationale for uh, these uh, many requests. Um, so you're, your compliments in that direction are, are well-directed. Um, let me, I, I guess at this point, uh, um, let me go to the members of the board and see if they have any comments or questions that they would like to bring up at this time. I'll start with Vice Chair Leslie Rattan. Good evening. Thank you, legislators, for being here. Uh, I really appreciate it very, very much. Um, uh, this was actually a very productive session, I thought. Um, I know a lot of these items have been in our legislative priorities letters for many years. And so I think you know by now that we mean it. <laughs> so I think we're not just like throwing things at you and see, to see what sticks. And there, there's some common themes that we've talked about every year. And I know that you take it seriously as well. So I, I'm hearing a lot of positiveness um, from you as far as a lot of these items go. And I know that um, as far as I'm concerned, um, I like hearing the positiveness about the uh, flexibility to address COVID-19, because I know that residents um, really have enjoyed being able to sit at home and turn on their computers and laptops and tune in very easily, as opposed to having to trace over to town hall. So I think that as transparent as our board is and strives to be, it makes it easier uh, for residents to see that and to understand that it's we're trying to make it easy for them to tune in. So whatever we need to do to further allow that, I think is, is beneficial. Uh, it, it brings people in, it makes people feel like they're involved. So the more that we can do, the better. Um, also the municipal building authority. I love the idea of that so much. I have worked um, fairly extensively with the MSBA um, I've been on some feasibility study committees and, of course, was with the Lincoln Street School Building uh, Committee. And just to have something like this so that uh, towns can be encouraged to, to look further and maybe actually consider um, some municipal building upgrades and renovations. So I think that's a fantastic idea. Um, and yeah, I, those are the two main things I just wanted to mention, but I thank you very, very much for being here. Very, very informative and helpful. We appreciate it very much. Thank you, Leslie. Uh, next, I'll go to Scott Rogers. Yeah, thank you. And thanks to the delegation for spending time with us. We really appreciate these sessions. And as you've seen, we're pretty consistent, right, in the, uh, the top priorities that we have. Uh, it's unfortunate timing that we're going to then lose uh, most of you in terms of uh, continued partnerships. We certainly appreciate the partnerships over the years. 
um, and and uh, you know look forward to some some new personnel uh, rotating in. But uh, just want to say you know thank you for your commitment and 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 responses that you're taking these seriously, and hopefully we can make some progress in these areas. Thank you, Scott. Uh, next, uh, Julianne Hirsch. Good evening. I must admit that I'm always a little nervous speaking in front of the legislative delegation. You have such important jobs and I do appreciate all you've done for us. So I'll start with um, Representative Kilcoyne. You will be our, our veteran representative come the next election. So um, we certainly look forward to seeing you at more events and um, you've, been, you've been really responsive and appreciate that very much. Um, Representative Gregoire, I hope you will continue to come to our, our parades and events and uh, we'll miss you there. And always, you know, you, you've um, been so responsive and, and just, you know, so clear with, with your, what you can do to help us. Um, Senator Eldridge, I have to say that my favorite thing about you is that, um, or one of my favorite things is your devotion to the climate. And um, I hope you continue to do that. We'll miss you. And Senator Chandler, I don't know what to say. It's, you have been a trailblazer. You have been a role model. You've helped us in more ways than I think you, you know, as, a, as someone who has taught us how to solve problems. And I wish you the best in your retirement. Thank you, Julianne. And uh, Kristen Wickstead. Hi everyone. I just, um, it's my first meeting with all of you. Um, so I just wanted to say uh, hello and thank you for um, paying attention to us. And um, yeah, don't forget us if you're moving on. And Senator Chandler, um, you in particular, you're just retiring and I just got elected last spring. So um, we're just barely passing in the wind here, but um, it's really nice to meet you. And it's nice to see all of you and um, good luck to, to everyone and to all of us. I think it's great we're all working, basically, it sounds like we're all working on the same thing. And I really appreciate that. Thank you, Kristen. Uh, Leslie, you have another comment? Yes, now this is a time I also wanted to add that as far as, um, Harriet goes, I will always have wonderful memories of the various sessions about the composting bill. And <laughs> going on, we are still in, in process. Yes. <laughs> not give up hope. Yes, I am very happy to hear that. It seems so, it goes back so far, but I have some, some nice memories of sitting in on some sessions and some interesting discussion. And uh, I think it's fantastic if that, if that can continue. Uh, I think that's very, very important. And I want to thank you very much for, um, you know, spearheading that and trying to get that moving along and doing everything you did for that. Uh, a couple of the notes I wanted to add, though, is that um, you were the first female elected to the state Senate from Worcester, and um, which is wonderful. You are truly a role model for many. And I want to congratulate you on March 11th, 2022, um, being named Harriet Chandler Day in Worcester. I thought that was, I thought that was very nice. It was an unexpected. Yeah. Very unexpected. So congratulations and thank you very much. Wish you the best of luck. Thank you. 
Thank you, Leslie. Uh, John? So I'm going to pile on here. First, I want to thank Senator uh, Eldridge for all his years of, uh, of service and working with the town of Northboro. And um, it's uh, his dedication to the climate is uh, is one of the things I'm we're, we're counting on as we move forward in uh, some of the bills that we're looking at. Uh, Danielle Gregoire is I, I'm going to miss you terribly. Uh, we spent a lot of time at nights and weekends talking. Um, really, uh, I can't even tell you how accessible Danielle's been for us and responsive her and her staff have been to uh, the things that have come up in Northboro. Uh, really gonna miss that uh, that excellent working relationship. And then uh, Harriet Chandler, I, I don't know what to say. It's, I, you've been here for the 20 years I've been here working together. Um, we, um, we've, I've spent quite a bit of time in your office in, uh, in Boston. One of my favorite memories was uh, in your office as you were acting Senate president and uh, we were trying to get some things done regarding some composting and you were making some phone calls and I loved watching everybody jump and scamper and run uh, because you made the phone call. Uh, but everything that you did for us, that not just that day, but all the way through has just always been uh, in the best interest of Northboro, in the best interest of public policy in general. And again, nights, weekends, uh, we, we talk very often and then your staff it's just been phenomenal too in following up. Uh, I'm gonna really miss working with you. I wish you all the best in your well-deserved uh, retirement. Um, and Megan, you got a lot to, to do now because you gotta pick up the slack from these three veterans uh, moving forward. So, um, you know, I just say that this delegation's worked well individually. You've worked well with us and as a group, you've worked well together. And um, I hate to break up a winning team, but uh, but I understand change is in the air. and. Um, but Senator uh, Chandler, I hope you you won't be a, a stranger and you're welcome and uh, you are welcome here anytime you want to come by. We'd love to see you. So thank you. Uh, Superintendent Martin, would you like to uh, comment? Yeah, so I will uh, repeat a lot of the, the remarks. I, I concur fully and Senator Chandler on behalf of the former uh, superintendent, you know, Dr. Charles Cabron, Christine Johnson, and all those who've served in the past. We are in, have great um, appreciation for your leadership, your advocacy for education, and I think you have made an uh, impactful difference to the community of Northboro, and we are greatly indebted to you. So thank you, and we wish, wish you the best in your future endeavors. Your schools speak for themselves. Mm -hmm. They're Thank you, Superintendent Martineau. And uh, I will just uh, add uh, my comment. I won't repeat the compliments that uh, have already been issued. Uh, the good work that all of you have done over these years, uh, we certainly appreciate all of that and, and we've benefited very strongly. Uh, what I, I guess what I would add is that because we are undergoing such a great amount of change here in terms of representation, I would invite all of you to um, contact your counterpart who will be representing Northborough and uh, provide whatever um, perspectives or insights or advice you might have for them so that uh, they can come up to speed quickly so that they have someone uh, that they can turn to uh, for advice if needed. And uh, additionally, Meg, you, you've kind of finding yourself in that same position as our newest representative. And uh, from your own perspective, I'm sure you could also add some uh, assistance or insights uh, to, to the new representatives that come on board here for Northboro. So thank you very much. Uh, we appreciate all the good work you've done and 
frankly, we look forward to continued good work uh, 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 at the state level, uh, even with the change in representation. Jason, if I could just jump on quickly, what I just I think would be remiss if I didn't, on behalf of the delegation, congratulate the Algonquin girls hockey team for their recent win in the state championship. Uh, Representative Kilcoin and I have been working on getting. We're going to bring the girls into the state house and and give them the royal treatment. So um, John mentioned winning team, and I thought I'd take the opportunity to congratulate those young women. I can't imagine how hard they worked and and how much they deserve to be honored and feted by everyone. So I think it's only appropriate that we do it in this public way. So I apologize for uh, taking over for a minute. And I hope you no will problem move over to the house, to the Senate as well, so that Senator Eldridge and I can do the same. <laughs> John said he's taking me out to lunch that day, so I, I will be there. <laughs> it's a uh, quite an accomplishment, and certainly I'm sure a visit uh, to to the state house will uh, be uh, certainly appreciated by them. Um, it's a well earned uh, recognition. Uh, if there's nothing more, uh, we thank you all for being here this evening. Thank you, and uh, we all wish you well in the future. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you very much. Yeah. Great to Thanks see you. Uh, very good. Um, Chief, could you bring in the members of the Northboro Appropriations Committee? Yep, we're getting them in now, sir. And we will bring. Uh, There we are. All right, you can lean forward. Next five minutes. <laughs> Excellent. Do we have? I think uh, that's everybody? got them all, sir. Cameras right up there on top of the screen. Okay. Yeah, look in there. Just uh, see if I can find everybody here. Uh, in my Brady bunch. Uh, Maybe it's not looking. To I think Janice Height is coming in as George Brinkle. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I'm at his house. <laughs> <laughs> and do we? Not have Rick Niebuhr. Oh, there he is. He's, uh, yeah. And Bob D'Amico's on too. George Frankel should be coming in too. Yeah, he's there. I think I got everybody. Where's George Frankel? He's not. Uh, he's here. Oh, there yeah, he is. He's here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, for this segment of our show, this is a joint public hearing of the Northboro Board of Selectmen and the Northboro Appropriations Committee for the fiscal year 2023 proposed budget. Um, I guess I would just like to ask uh, the chair of the Appropriations Committee to uh, introduce the members. Um, well, good evening, Jason. Uh, my name is Rick Neighbor, and I've recently been uh, appointed as the chair of the uh, Appropriations Committee. Uh, it is now 18 minutes past the hour of 8 o'clock, and I will call our committee to order. We'll start with a roll call vote, uh, vote, and this will be alphabetically. Please acknowledge in the affirmative when I call your name. George Brinkle. 
here. Let's see. Uh, we have uh, Bob D'Amico here. And our new vice chair, Janice Height. I see you sitting there, Janice. <laughs> you have to unmute yourself, Janet. Here. Okay. And we have Tim Kalen. Here. And last but not least, Tony Petit. Here. Thank you. I'll now turn this back to the uh, chair of the of the selectmen. Uh, Thank you very much, Rick. Um, and I will now turn the presentation over to our town administrator, John Coderre, to give us the fiscal year 2023 proposed budget. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, thank you, everyone. I appreciate everyone being here. Um, the budget itself is included in the warrant that's on the uh, website with the packet. I do have a presentation this evening that sort of uh, tries to bring everything together from the various uh, from the various uh, budgets that you've all been hearing about. <sighs> Janice, you might want to um, uh, just mute your your mic. All set. All right. Can everybody see that okay? Yes. Excellent. All right. So this is the fiscal 2023 uh, proposed budget that we're going to be rolling through tonight. In terms of the agenda, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the budget goals and assumptions that went into the uh, creation of this budget. I'm going to give an overview of uh, all the general fund uh, budgets. And so basically uh, including the K-8 schools, Algonquin Regional High School, ASIVIT, and then the general government. And then last but not least, uh, I'm going to focus on uh, a few slides on reviewing the general government budget highlights. So these are the non-school uh, departments. In terms of just the bottom line, there's no major surprises uh, in this budget. It's a level service budget. You've heard, if you've watched the presentations from the school superintendent, you've heard him say both at Algonquin and uh, at the K-8 level, uh, the goal is, you know, maintaining the current level of services. Um, I would characterize, if anything, uh, this year as a rebuilding year. Uh, rebuilding in that uh, we're still trying to restore some of the impacts, budgetary impacts of the pandemic on our operations, most notably uh, our financial reserves, uh, contributions to our other post-employment uh, benefit trust fund, uh, our unfunded liability capital investments that got postponed, and then some, some limited operating budget um, uh, enhancements or restorations of things that might've got nipped and tucked uh, during the pandemic. The last piece uh, I just wanna, uh, we're gonna end on this, so I wanna do it on a, a bookend and on the front end here is that the, you know, each year we seem to have some issue uh, or uh, event that has a major impact on the finances. If, you know, if it's not the pandemic, a couple of years back, it was a um, enrollment shifting at the high school level, caused our assessment to go up uh, significantly by like $600,000. This year, it's home values. Uh, so home market values continue to rise, and it's going to place uh, a significant pressure on the single family home tax bills. If you're watching the newspapers, you've seen uh, neighboring communities uh, directly abutting us talking about uh, $1,100 tax bill increases, $1,300 tax bill increases. Most of it is being driven by the fact that single family home values are just uh, escalating uh, very fast. 
So just quickly, there's four main umbrella goals that we have that we maintain uh, from a financial standpoint uh, as a backdrop. The first is to protect or improve the town's overall financial condition. We spend a couple of hours every December going through the town's trend monitoring report and forecasts, and, uh, and we have measures to determine exactly what the condition is in terms of the town of Northborough. And uh, just broadly, it's defined as our ability to maintain services, withstand interruptions like recessions and pandemics and storms, and to meet the demands of natural growth. And so, uh, so we want to, every decision we make today will have an impact on our financial condition down the road. And so that's why we track all of those indicators. The second is this budget is uh, without gimmicks or unsustainable practices. So we're not uh, putting large amounts of uh, one-time revenues in the operating budget. We're not pushing expenses or impacts off to different fiscal years. This budget that I'm going to present this evening is in conformance with the town's comprehensive financial policies. Uh, the third is to maintain Northborough as an affordable place to live and operate a business. This one is going to be a significant factor for us. As we discussed uh, back in December, when we did the trend monitoring, the forecasting, we know that single family home values are up. That's gonna cause single family home tax bills to escalate. But we also have a few significant projects on the horizon. We have a, a fire uh, station project, a town hall project. And within a couple of years, we're looking to move forward with the Peasley Elementary School. All of those things are going to have significant uh, tax impacts uh, as we move forward. So we wanna make sure that we're smoothing those impacts and managing that in a way that doesn't create significant spikes. And then last but not least, the thing that's uh, always difficult for folks maybe that have a short-term perspective uh, looking at a one year, 12 month budget is that we wanna make sure that we're protecting our long run solvency with things like the amount of debt we take on our pension obligations, our OPEB liabilities, and our capital investments. And two of the things that you'll hear me talk about tonight are uh, a need to get back onto our funding schedule for our OPEB liabilities and the need to get back onto our schedule for our capital investments. Those were two things that were delayed as we got through the pandemic. By way of background, and this is always important to know where you've been most recently so you understand where it is that we think we are going uh, immediately in the upcoming fiscal year. But we got through the pandemic, uh, the immediate disruption financially of the pandemic when the economy shut down by a few things. Number one, we constrained operating budgets. So we cut operating budgets down to 1% in fiscal 21, and we constrained them heavily last year or in the current fiscal year 2022. We dipped in and used some one-time uh, free cash, 378,000. We stopped putting money into our rainy day fund. So typically on an annual basis, we put $200,000 into the stabilization fund to maintain a certain level of reserve ratios between eight and 10% of our operating budget. We have not done that for two fiscal years. We postponed a significant amount of capital in fiscal 21. And when we closed out the year because budgets were so tight, we had very little or relatively uh, little free cash to do pay-as-you-go capital investments in fiscal 2022. So we have this bubble of capital projects that have formed in our six-year capital improvement plan. Those need to be addressed because they aren't going to go away. One of the main uh, ways that we got through the pandemic uh, was we postponed about a million dollars in other post-employment benefits uh, trust fund contributions. So every year, 
we contribute about a half a million dollars into our trust fund. And we should be contributing more than double that if we're on a really good funding schedule. So 550 or $500,000 is the absolute minimum we should be putting into our trust fund. We have not done anything for two years. So again, as I always draw the analogy to you know, your personal life uh, in terms of uh, finances, you know, in your personal life, if something bad happened, you got sick or you lost your job, what would you do? You'd cut back your, your operating expenses, your discretionary spending. You might dip into your savings a little bit to get by in immediate. You probably aren't going to be able to put money into your savings account. And you probably aren't going to contribute to your long run plans like your retirement account, right? But as soon as things turn around or get better, you have to go back and touch each one of those things. And, in, and you actually need to make up some ground that you lost for postponing, particularly saving plans and, and retirement type plans. So those would be our, our stabilization fund, our capital investment in our trust fund. So the, in my opinion, uh, and I think you'll hear from the appropriations committee tonight, the priority really needs to be restoration of these cuts. They were, they were never meant to be permanent cuts. They were meant to be temporary to give us some time to react, to wait for some federal assistance and some state assistance and to maneuver. And I'm, I'm sitting here today and telling you uh, it worked absolutely perfectly. We got through this pandemic without cutting any, any core services and, uh, and, and in some respects, stepping up considerably to provide additional enhanced services, especially with regard to public health. So, um, so again, we need to come back to these expenses, and you're going to hear me talk about these tonight. So in terms of the fiscal 23 budget assumptions, uh, let's just start with taxes. Uh, we are going to see a, you know, a significant tax impact. We talk about this in December, but uh, the tax increase is limited to Prop 2.5. So there's no override. There's no use of excess levy capacity. So the tax increase and the increase in the uh, revenues for taxes is a standard Prop two and a half increase, nothing unusual. We are not using any financial reserves to prop up this budget. Uh, we always, through our policy, bring $500,000 forward in free cash to support the upcoming budget. That is a less than 1% of the operating budget, and that's the target under our policy. We need to return, uh, and this budget tries to do that, uh, funding for our OPEB trust fund. So in the tax base, is $300,000 of funding for, o, for the OPUB trust fund. It is not the full 550, as you know from your last meeting, the proposal was to use 250,000 of ARPA funding to help us phase it in so we don't have a spike in the tax impact. And then next year, the plan would be that it would all be back in the tax base, just like it was prior to the pandemic. But right now, uh, under, the tax, under the taxes, uh, we're only looking at 300,000. We are returning uh, to uh, contribute to the stabilization fund beginning in this year. We haven't done that in two years. Uh, as your budget increases, but your savings do not, as a ratio, it will decline. So uh, we do need to start contributing back. The 200,000 for stabilization fund would come out of free cash. So there'd be no additional uh, tax impact. So we're not really uh, spending that money so much as designating and setting aside in the, uh, in the um, savings account. And then last but not least, uh, under the capital improvement plan and the capital budget, which I'm not going to be getting into this evening, I'll also give you a brief presentation that at your next meeting, we do need to get back to funding those capital projects.
In terms of the revenue assumptions, we, we refined these since your meeting in uh, December, and I've given you at least two updates with regard to the budget uh, over the last uh, month and a half or so. But tax receipts, again, it's a prop two and a half increase. Uh, you'll say, well, why is it going up three and a half percent? Well, it includes debt exclusions that were approved by the voters for a high school project, the library, the senior center, Lincoln Street, and some of the, uh, the short-term debt for the fire station. We're only looking at uh, $40 million in new growth. Uh, we've talked extensively when we set the tax rate back in November about how the town is not going to see any real significant development moving forward. We're approaching build out. The last uh, significant area, industrial uh, commercial area of the town is now largely built out. So uh, new growth revenues at $40 million for fiscal 23. And with, we're gonna see that drop down to about 30 moving forward. Local receipts, motor vehicle excise, hotel meals, licenses, things of that nature, continue to recover slowly. We had a big bump when the economy opened back up, but then we've seen things sort of flatten and taper off. So fiscal 23, our local receipts are level funded at, uh, at $4.17 million. One important part, point I wanna make out to you, especially for those members who have been around for a long time, is about eight years ago, we had a lawsuit settlement uh, with the town of Southboro over the high school building project and how the state, uh, the allocation of the MSBA grant for that project was distributed to both communities. Uh, the town prevailed on that and, North, and Southboro had to pay us $1.7 million plus interest. Now we chose to put them on a, or they uh, chose to pay that out over eight years. And fiscal 23 is the last year, the eighth payment, and it's about $232,000. Why am I talking about this? Because that is a good chunk of money in our local receipts that is not going to be there next year. So automatically we're gonna see, if our, if our local receipts grow, and hopefully they will this upcoming year, at the end of the day, the number probably isn't gonna move much in terms of for fiscal 2024, because we're losing right off, off the top this settlement payment. Uh, if you're wondering, the debt for that high school building project goes on to fiscal 2027. So the bill is still there, just this, uh, this settlement subsidy is disappearing. I'm sure Southboro is very happy about that, but from Northboro, it's going to, again, when we talk about forecasts in the future, where's our revenue growth? You just heard from our legislators, state aid's going up 1%. Local receipts are going to be pretty flat for this year and next year. You know, all the pressure is on, on the tax bill. Uh, speaking of state aid, uh, under the governor's budget, uh, we're looking at 1.03%. Uh, now, I know our legislative delegation was just here, and they talk about how they're going to do things uh, and increase state aid above the governor's. Two, some of the things that they do are very helpful to the town of Northborough when they do things and they have historically supported things like funding the circuit breaker at a higher level, funding regional transportation at a higher level. These are off budget accounts that help us to provide services, but they're not direct, um, direct state aid. None of those things that we talked about are, uh, are coming to us on our cherry sheets, on our actual state aid. It's really chapter 70, uh, education aid, undistributed, uh, unrestricted general government, and then a handful of little accounts like library aid and so forth. 
So I don't want anybody to think to themselves, oh, we're going to have this windfall. Usually what happens at the end, it's a $5.61 million account. By the end of the legislature's work, we might see another thirty dollars or $40,000 in that account. It's not going to have a material impact on the finances of the town of Northborough. So we, instead of 1%, we might see 1.5%. But we are not going to see anything meaningful from the legislature. Uh, at least that's not what the historic data is showing us. We will see a little bit more. Uh, the off-budget items like SPED and uh, Circuit Breaker, regional transportation, those indirectly are very helpful, but our direct state aid, not likely. In terms of other available funds, right now we're, we're bringing in 500,000 in free cash into the operating budget, like just like we always do every year when it's available. So I'm gonna talk a little bit more about state aid. So uh, it's interesting to, on the heels of our, our delegation just departing uh, from the meeting, I talked about December 20th was the revenue consensus hearing and they agreed that there's 2.7% uh, uh, increase forecast in state revenues. State revenue is going has really gone up 7.3%, and since 2020, it's gone up 21%. They are flush with cash. The governor is proposing $2.4 billion in supplemental fiscal 2022 spending, the fiscal year we're in right now. Um, there is no reason, frankly, that we shouldn't see a significant increase in state aid. Now, we know as being a minimum aid community, the vast majority of our aid, as I just covered in the previous segment on the, on the uh, agenda, is coming in under Chapter 70, $30 per student. If they don't increase that and they don't do anything with, uh, with unrestricted general government aid, as is laid out in this slide here, we're going to see, you know, we're, we're going to look at 1%, maybe 1.5%. In, in state aid. So uh, this is critical to us. And that's why we spent so much time with our legislators talking about it. Again, the governor's budget was released on January 26th, 1%. Chapter 70 represents 73% of the state aid that we receive on our cherry sheets. And that's why that $30 a student minimum aid, and we're a minimum aid community, all of the additional or a lion's share of the additional revenues that are coming at the state right now are being pumped through the Student Opportunity Act, going to very uh, much more needy districts than ours. But it means we're just not going to see much, if any, of that additional revenue. So that's the disconnect. If you're reading the newspaper and you're reading these quotes, 21% increases in aid since, in, in revenues since fiscal 20, why isn't that translating down to Northborough? That's why. Unrestricted general government aid is only 22%. Uh, what I always tell folks is, you know, state aid is not a mathematical exercise. It's not a case of their revenues go up, ours go up. Their revenues go up, and then they choose how to spend that. The town of Northborough is not typically one of the beneficiaries of that. So, uh, you know, we have not seen much more than about a 1%, 1.5% increase in state aid for the last five to six years. That's just how it is. If you look at this graph, this is state aid over the last 30 years, and you can see the, uh, the valleys and the arrows. Those are recessionary periods where in nominal dollars, not adjusted for inflation, state aid's actually been cut. Uh, we didn't see that with the pandemic. The federal aid came through. They held us harmless. 
But if you look from fiscal you know, 16 over, you can see very, very small, actually, if you go back to fiscal 12, very small increases in state aid. And that's what we've seen. This is the graph I just shared with our legislative delegation. You know, when you look at it in nominal dollars, it looks like from left to right, at least for the last five or six years, it looks like a positive trend. When you adjust for inflation and you look at it as a percentage of our revenues, state aid is, has been, and will continue to be, by all uh, estimates, a negative trend for us. It is going down. If you see from 21 to fiscal 2022, it looks like it's a little bit of a bump right there. The reality is, is that that is based on our estimated budget. When you, we get our final budget and our final revenues come in and we do a rebalancing, I think you're going to see that that will be the next point lower than fiscal 2021. Um, but it isn't really going up in 2022 relative to our other revenues. So that's the deal with uh, state aid. In terms of our revenues overall, the profile hasn't changed. Roughly about 80% uh, of our budget is based on taxes, local taxes. Used to be 10%, the 13%. Now in fiscal 2023, uh, it's going to drop down to 7.9% of our revenues in state, as state aid. Free cash is up uh, because we're going to be using quite a bit of that to uh, fund some pay-as-you-go capital with no additional tax impact. And then local receipts. Those are the motor vehicle, uh, hotel, motel, licenses. Uh, it's about uh, pretty steady at about 6% of our local uh, revenues. Now, when you think about <clears throat> local receipts, in that number, about 90, 95% of local receipts <clears throat> Excuse me, give me one second. <clears throat> About 95% of that little slice of blue pie right there is motor vehicle excise. I'm sure you all know there's a shortage of motor vehicles, uh, the, the chip shortage, supply ch uh, chain. So motor vehicles is not bouncing back. Um, people, there aren't new cars to buy or fewer new cars to buy. And so the taxes, the motor vehicle excise tax that's based on vehicles is very heavily weighted towards new vehicles. And then it drops off very quickly. You buy a new vehicle, you might pay $500. After, if you keep that vehicle for four or five years, you're probably paying about 84 bucks. So that is having an impact and will continue to be a drag on our local receipts you know, moving forward until that, that supply chain issue gets addressed. In terms of the budget in brief, this is the whole picture here. And if you look down, you can see that under the general fund, which includes the schools, Algonquin, Acevit, general government, uh, overall, the general fund budget, so not the enterprise funds, the water, sewer, and solid waste. These are the general fund budget, which is what we're focusing on tonight. It's about a 5.28% increase. On the surface, that seems like a pretty healthy increase, but it's really not. And when you look at it, if you look at this slide, it shows the fiscal year budget at about 67.6 million and the fiscal 23 proposed at 71.24. So when you control for one-time capital and stabilization fund, so you look at, we're putting $2 million in pay-as-you-go capital with no additional tax impact and $200,000 of free cash into the savings account with no additional tax impact. 
that 5.3% in terms of operating budget increases is really only 3.2. Now it's a lot of numbers, um, but it's important that we look at it this way because uh, the capital in putting money into your savings account are gonna fluctuate each year. When you control, uh, and based on the available revenues and budget surplus that you have, when you control for that, we're looking at a very modest 3.2% increase in the general fund budget. So what does that mean for the key budgets that uh, accounts that we all look at? The Northbrook K-8 schools uh, are gonna go up 3.46%. The general government budget, the non-schools are gonna go up 3.65%. So the target or the revised target was three and a half percent. That's what we need to maintain the current level of services. On February 22nd, we got notice that uh, we have another student going to the Norfolk Agricultural High School. So uh, that cost comes in on the general government side of the budget. It's very difficult. We don't know that it's coming. And so at that point, uh, it's, uh, it's about $70,000 for two students. So it's about $34,000 roughly each. And so uh, that at the end, and I mentioned this in my last budget update has been added to the general government side of the budget. I could not cut another 34,000 out of the non-school uh, departments to accommodate this expense. And I just wanna clarify one thing. Um, when we talk about this, uh, students have a right, just like uh, special education, they have a right to those services. If they wanna go to a charter school, they have a right to attend a charter school. The difference being, that we get special education circuit breaker money for those when those placements move into town at the 11th hour, it gets phased in. If uh, they go to a charter school, uh, it's offset. When this happens, there's no state program to offset these impacts and they come at the 11th hour. And so that's the legitimate public policy discussion. That's why we talk about this. But when it comes in at the end of the budget process, when everything is basically done, um, that's why it's been added on to the 3.5%, that's the Delta. In terms of Assabet Valley, this is our, our, our vocational high school that we participate in. Their assessment's going up a little over 17%, driven by enrollment. We have nine more students going to Assabet this year. Overall, their, the school's budget is going up 4.3%. Our assessment is going up significant just because we're sending more students. Now here's the good news the silver lining in this year's budget process. You've heard us talk for probably the last three years how shifting enrollments, more students from Northboro going to the high school has meant that our assessment has been escalating much higher rate than the overall budget. So the, uh, the Algonquin Regional High School budget is only going up a little over 3%. Our assessment, however, is going up 0.28%. So a fraction, a third of 1%. And for the first time in many years, uh, that enrollment shift has reversed. So our high school assessment this year is, is relatively flat. The town of Southboro's assessment, which was actually negative and flat for a couple of years, is up 9% this year. So in terms of tax uh, impact, this has helped us because the model that we showed you back in December assumed a three and a half percent increase in the Algonquin Region High School assessment. So that's not gonna materialize. So that's good news for us. 
overall in terms of expenditures across all of those uh, budgets, uh, the pie chart doesn't look radically different. About 58 to 60% is uh, school expenses. Uh, the general government, town government uh, side of the budget is about 21%. Insurance and benefits has remained very uh, stable at uh, just under 14%. And uh, the one I draw your attention to is as we continue to pay down our existing debt uh, in preparation for taking on the fire station building project, our debt service is at an all-time low of 2.7%. It is time to take on that next project. So now I'm gonna shift gears. That's sort of the big picture, what's happening with the budget in the town of Northborough. I'm just gonna hit some of the highlights for the general government non-school departments. Um, the appropriations committee is making their way through. They've been meeting with the, the larger departments uh, for the last several weeks. Uh, they're meeting again this Thursday to meet with the library, the senior center uh, and go through their budgets. But, uh, but I'm gonna give you the highlights right now of, of the general government uh, side of the budget. So the biggest thing to make note of as you look through the line items that are included uh, in the uh, warrant that shows the actual line items for the budget, um, all of our collective bargaining, we have five units uh, on the general government side. None of those contracts have been settled yet. Uh, we also have a classification compensation study that is wrapping up uh, this week. The financial impact of that uh, has not been uh, filtered through either. Most of the impacts need to be negotiated. Uh, new job descriptions and new grade classifications all need to be negotiated with the, uh, with the union before they become effective. So for the time being, under the personnel board account in the budget line, uh, there's over uh, approximately $350,000 that's in that line uh, to handle all of the um, uh, ultimately all of the personnel costs through all the departments. When you review and you look at the individual budgets for the individual uh, departments, non-school departments, none of them have wage increases for personnel. That's all budgeted centrally right now, pending uh, union negotiations. The only addition uh, that we put back into the budget was restoration of a DPW light equipment operator. We actually cut a position out of their budget, it was vacant at the time. And when the pandemic hit, we froze that position and we eliminated it. Uh, so that is being restored in this budget. And that's about $54,000. So when you look at the DPW budget, uh, roughly half of that increase in there is restoration of this uh, position. This position is also going to be married and paired up with uh, uh, our new facilities manager to be able to do some, some more routine facilities maintenance and not have to outsource everything. We've added a part-time cable access position for remote meeting coverage. If you remember when we went remotely, we hired uh, Jim, who was, our, uh, who was our host, who was coordinating all those remote meetings. Jim is now a full-time, he's now the assistant uh, MIS uh, IT uh, director, uh, which was a great hire for us. Um, so we're going to be, we need somebody to replace Jim to host these remote meetings. And uh, that position will be paid for out of cable access fees. So that's not going to impact the bottom line taxes. Speaking of MIS, GIS, uh, we've got some expenses to move uh, Munis, which is our financial software to a cloud version and update some, some uh, servers. One of the things I would want to mention to you is we have two major 
studies under uh, going uh, um, undergoing at the moment. One is we have a M an IT MISGIS master strategic plan that is being conducted right now, and it's funded through the state's community compact grant program for forty thousand dollars. And then we also got another grant uh, with the town of Westboro to do a complete cybersecurity audit on the town of Northboro. So those two uh, studies are ongoing uh, right now. Ultimately, those will help guide our future IT spending to make sure that we are uh, we have a proper balance of staffing and consultants and as well as uh, good cybersecurity. Well, bottom budget here, uh, we have increased the public buildings by 25,000. As we brought our facilities manager on, he's been going through all the departmental budgets, getting a good assessment on the buildings and has requested uh, uh, an additional funding in that uh, account to start doing some, uh, some small equipment uh, and facility repairs uh, rather than wait for things to break to get ahead of them, be a little bit more proactive. On a positive note, our recreation department, which was completely shut down during the pandemic. Um, for those of you that don't know, our rec department, unlike most across the state, has historically been 100% self-sufficient with program fees, basically user fees. When the pandemic hit, they couldn't run programs, so we had to absorb them into the, uh, into the general fund budget uh, for the town. In fiscal 2023, uh, the cost of the rec department is about $145,000 a year for two full-time people. $75,000 is going to be coming into Article 4 on the budget to offset uh, the cost. So ideally, over the next year or two, uh, we'll get that rec program back to 100% self-sufficient. That's the target for us. I want to mention family uh, and youth services budget still includes uh, the enhancement that was added last year of the interface mental health referral. This has been a phenomenal program for us. Essentially, it allows, uh, it's, it's through uh, William and James College and uh, it allows any Northboro resident who requires mental health services. If you, uh, it's a free consulting referral service. They will get you in touch with a certified uh, mental health counselor within two weeks get you paired up with somebody who will either take your insurance or math, mass health or, uh, or find you through the state uh, uh, system of free mental health consulting. So that has been phenomenal for us. The last report I saw was uh, 37 people had been referred in the last uh, quarter. That has been fantastic. In terms of a service delivery model, this has been the most cost-effective uh, approach that we could use. You cannot hire a counselor that would have the breadth of knowledge to deal with children, uh, adolescents, adult people, couples counseling, family therapy. This program gets people referred straight off within two weeks, paired up with a counselor to match their needs. Um, I already mentioned the uh, tuition and transportation costs for the two Norfolk Aggie uh, students that has uh, come into the budget this year. And then as far as budget drivers or pressure, the Worcester Regional Retirement System, our assessment is going up 10%. Our assessment is going to continue to go up for the foreseeable future by about 10 or 11%. That's $255,000. So um, that is to get them on a fully funding uh, schedule for, uh, for our unfunded liability for pension. So there's nothing that this board 
or the appropriations committee or any policy board in Northborough needs to do. That is automatically built into our annual assessment. However, we do need to come up with the money to pay that. And that takes a very significant chunk out of the annual uh, budget increase of three and a half percent. Lastly, I've got some fantastic news for you. Uh, health insurance budget is only going up 1% this year. As you know, uh, we've had a long history of managing our health insurance. It is potentially the, the most uh, significant budget buster for us. Uh, most recently for fiscal 23, we formed a JPA, which is a joint procurement association with the Algonquin Regional High School in the town of Southboro. So essentially we all held hands and went out to bid with all of our subscribers to give us a little bit more leverage in the marketplace. At the end of the day, we got very favorable bids in and uh, we are going to be uh, moving over to Harvard Pilgrim as our sole carrier. Uh, I'm very pleased to report that the Insurance Advisory Committee, which consists of all the bargaining units for the town, including the school department, the teachers and the custodians and the cafeteria workers, unanimously uh, supported this bid and the award to Harvard Pilgrim. At the end of the day, uh, when we look at the premium changes and the subscribers coming and going, it results in about a 1% budget increase. So if you look back prior to fiscal 2010, we were looking at 10, 11% increases in health insurance. So look at that average now, the last 10 or 12 years, it is below 3%. That was an incredible amount of work by the superintendent, uh, the treasurer's office and the financial team to get that done uh, this fiscal year. That could have just as easily come in at a seven or eight or a 9%. We'd be having a very different budget discussion tonight if that was the case. I'm gonna circle back here on OPEB, other post-employment benefits. Uh, this is again, a reminder, we have not contributed for the last two years. In this budget is 300,000. The proposal that was made back in December uh, of last year at the financial trend monitoring to these two boards that are here right now was that we were gonna phase OPEB back into the tax base because we had eliminated it temporarily. 300 in the tax base and 250,000 using ARPA funding to get us phased back in so we don't see a spike in the tax impact. And then next year, 2024, we bring that other, the other half back in and we're back on track, right? Uh, for a variety of reasons, uh, that proposal has not been approved by the Board of Selectmen yet, um, but it will, I hope, have further discussion because we've, we've lost a million dollars of investment for the last two years and absent uh, additional funding from ARPA, we are going to add another $250,000 to that deficit uh, moving forward. In the general government budget, we talked about this with our legislative delegation, uh, we are, were able to increase the capital budget appropriation from 300,000 to 454,000 this year to try to make up a little bit of, uh, of uh, uh, room here. Uh, again, this is our pavement management plan. This is the grade of our, of our roads. And we've seen over the last uh, couple of years, we've had covert expenses um, that have drawn some of the revenues off of the road improvements. And so right now, as currently structured, we have uh, $500,000 in chapter 90 funds that are coming from the state. 
Uh, 300,000 is in the public works budget as it is every year. And under the capital budget, which is uh, one of the Warren articles, we're talking about bringing in 454,000 in free cash. And we need to try to get on that funding schedule. So when you look at that purple line that I'm showing there, that's the 1.1 million. That assumes that we're not gonna continue to divert any funding from the roadways to culverts or sidewalks. That's very important that people understand that. If we do, then that line is going to taper back down and we may lose ground. Now, in terms of sidewalks, there is no funding plan or mechanism in the operating budget right now for sidewalks. So we did, we did just complete, based on analysis that was done last year, a sidewalk management report. That management report has identified one and a half million dollars of sidewalks that are in poor or fair condition. We need to invest, this is for future consideration here, which is again why we were lobbying our delegation for more infrastructure chapter 90 funds. But we need to make an annual contribution in addition, in addition to the 1.1 here, we need another 200 to 300 a year to start moving our sidewalks into a positive direction. Our current rating is a 72 out of 100. So as part of the ARPA proposal that we discussed at your prior meeting, we are uh, recommending or the uh, financial planning committee uh, has discussed and uh, was recommended to the board that um, some one-time ARPA funding be used to start to deal with the backlog of capital projects. So that's the 1.5 million. The last bullet here is the complete streets program. So we are a complete streets community. We have available to us, we can apply for grants. Uh, under, under this year, from now through the fall of this year, we will be doing a complete streets prioritization plan. The DPW director got a grant to do this. That will look at sidewalk gaps, sidewalk enhancements, uh, bike lanes, things of that nature, okay? So we're talking 1.5 million backlog before we even talk about adding new sidewalks and connecting sidewalks and filling sidewalk gaps. And so that's the basis behind the request for ARPA funding for sidewalks. So there's no dedicated, some, there is money in, the 1.1 million where we're paving a road and the sidewalk is being repaired as part of that, but there is no dedicated right now sidewalk funding. We need more money from the state under chapter 90 and we need you know, some one-time revenues to throw at the backlog to get on track. You gotta fix what you have first before you start building new sidewalks. If you have 1.5 million in deteriorated sidewalks, those should be the priority and then if you can get grant funding and additional plan, then we should start talking about building new sidewalks and connecting. So this is just a, a heads up to what is, uh, what is coming in terms of needs in our community. I'm not gonna go through this. Uh, this is our dashboard. You know, I mentioned, uh, how, do we, how do we measure the town's financial condition? We don't just say we're in relatively good shape, we measure it and we report it. Well, these are the indicators. Our revenue indicators, expenditure indicators, our um, operating position indicators, our unfunded liability indicators, our debt indicators, and our infrastructure investment indicators. 
if you go through here, you can see the ones that are unfavorable. State aid, we've already talked about. We can't control that. Economic growth revenues, that's the pandemic. Uh, it's unfavorable, but it's starting to slowly return, but not as fast as we would like. Pension liability, we're on a funding plan. There's nothing for you to do with that regard to that. Other post-employment liability, that is directly in front of you. We have postponed a million dollars. We're only putting 300,000 in the tax base. That's one that you know we need to talk about how we're gonna start closing that gap. Otherwise, uh, the other indicators are good. And on a relative basis, the town is in pretty uh, good financial condition. Here's the slide and I'm about ready to wrap up, uh, but here's the slide everybody's been waiting for. So when we shared the uh, budget model with you on December 20th of last year, as part of the setting up the table for the budget process, we estimated a $560 uh, tax impact. Well, uh, now that's been modified down to $513 because the high school assessment and the shifting enrollment has come in uh, basically flat. That's the, that's the delta here. Um, again, the majority of that increase is due to uh, rising single family home values. If you look at that $513, if single family home values weren't moving, that increase would be uh, more of a standard $260 to $280 increase. The difference is the single family home value going up. So there's a shifting of the tax burden uh, based on the relative values of single family homes. Again, this is not unique to Northborough. As I said, two neighboring communities are looking at $1,100, $1,300. You're seeing this uh, coming across Central Mass across the board. So it's not the budgets that are driving that figure up. The spending is not out of control. We're at prop two and a half limits. Um, we're not getting much in state aid, uh, but probably 40 to 50% of that $513 increase is due to what's happening in the market. So years ago, when the uh, single family home values were plummeting and the commercial industrial properties were going up, that's when you saw years where the single, uh, single family home tax bill was flat or actually negative. Well, this is the other side of that, uh, of that trend. So I'm gonna wrap up, uh, but in conclusion, uh, the, pro the fiscal 23 budget as proposed is within the confines of Prop 2.5. It's in conformance with our town policies and it is not using any excess levy capacity. We're maintaining all of our core services. We're addressing the ongoing COVID-19 uh, impacts, particularly with regard to you know, health, uh, health services. We've restored partially some of the previous cuts, OPEB, we still have more work to do there. Uh, we're putting money back in stabilization. We're investing in capital, uh, more of our capital investments, but we have more to do there. And as far as the operating budgets, there's little tweaks here and there, like the restoration of the one DPW uh, position that was eliminated during the pandemic. And then last but not least, uh, we have done everything we can to minimize and uh, reasonable, uh, make a reasonable uh, tax impact on the residents under all of these uh, conditions. So with that, I will stop. I'll stop my screen share so everybody can see each other. And that in a nutshell is the FY23 uh, proposed budget.
Thank you very much, John. I appreciate the detailed presentation and the explanation of the various components that go into the budget preparation. Um, if I could, I'd just like to ask you to explain one particular detail. You, ex you mentioned that we're not using any excess levy capacity. Uh, just so that people understand, if we were to use excess levy capacity, what's the effect on the tax rate? Sure. So first of all, let's talk about how you get excess levy capacity. You get it by not taxing to the max of Prop 2.5. So years where we have had significant uh, economic development, we didn't just raise budgets to meet those new taxes. We created levy capacity. And so the town has levy capacity, uh, which means that you can raise taxes without seeking a Prop 2.5 operational override. So if, you, if you're in a municipality that's at the limits of Prop 2.5 and, and you can't support your operating budget and you need more resources, you have to go to the voters and ask to override the limits of Prop 2.5 and, and get additional capacity. We have levy capacity, and all that means is that we could increase our, tax, our taxes above Prop 2.5 by dipping into that levy capacity and all it would take is a vote of town meeting. It would not require a ballot vote because we have the levy capacity. Now let's just get to the brass tax and the bottom line. Be it a prop two and a half operational override or town meeting vote to dip into that levy capacity. The result is the same, it's tax impact. So if you work or live in another town, I'm from Connecticut originally, the only constraining factor on your tax increase is what is palatable to the community. In Massachusetts, we have Proposition Two and a Half, which is a formulaic, arbitrary and capricious uh, constraint on how much your taxes can go, how much your tax levy can go up each year. So Northborough has lived well within that. Um, but that levy capacity, you know, if we needed, say, another $100,000 or uh, to, uh, to, for the schools and for the town to make a level service budget work, we could dip into that levy capacity, but it, it is just a direct, it's not money in the bank. It's just our, your ability and the methodology for how you can raise taxes above the limits of two and a half is really all it is. So I hope that answered the question. Yes, I just wanted to make that point. We'd had some mention in an earlier meeting about if we have excess levy capacity, why aren't we using that to provide additional services or improved services. And I just want to make clear that it's it's not free money lying around. There is a direct tax impact on, on taxpayers uh, in the choice to try to you know expend some of that. Uh, and, and if I may add on to that, Mr. Chairman, we also have in our five-year forecasts, you know, we we would be under normal circumstances, our forecasts were showing that we would have to dip into that levy capacity just to maintain our current level of services over the next five years. And yet at the end of five years, uh, we would potentially require a prop two and a half override. That whole forecast was reset with the pandemic because we cut budgets to 1% uh, in fiscal 21. We constrained budgets in 2022. And so we wound up sort of giving ourselves additional capacity. But the bottom line is, as the town of Northborough reaches build out, we are going to eat into that levy capacity slowly, hopefully, not all at once, 
just to maintain the current level of services that we have. And at some point in the future, somewhere in the next five to 10 years, five to eight years, we're probably going to require a prop two and a half override to sustain our services, just like most of the area communities. So it's only been because of our excellent economic development and our fiscal constraint in not just spending all those new revenues as, they, as that development has come in. That's how we've created the capacity. What we've done very carefully is manage ourselves to have a smooth tax impact and smooth budget increases so that uh, so we can maintain our services. But, uh, but we're not going to be able to grow services uh, significantly and sustain them. Um, that's the issue. And even to sustain them, you heard the presentation tonight with our delegation. State aid's going up 1%. Local receipts are flat. They're not going up much. You know, that's our fund. Those are our funding sources and taxes. All the pressure for the foreseeable future is going to be on the Northborough taxpayers. And if we constrain economic development or just, we're just going to see less economic development in general, just because the land isn't available. We're approaching build out. That's, it's important to acknowledge, to shake the snow globe and to look out. It's important to acknowledge what kind of organization you are. For a long time, Northborough was a startup, right? Growing fast, lots of good economic development, uh, lots of expansion, right? Now we are a mature organization. So now we need to look at sustaining and maintaining and matching whatever we do for services to recurring revenue streams. And if you get out of balance, then you're going to dip into the levy capacity, taxes are going to go up even faster, and you're going to be up against the prop two and a half override. We've managed ourselves conservatively, we've managed ourselves well. But if you want to have the foreseeable future, the next five years or so, where you can continue to operate and maintain services, you've got to be very careful, which means you can't start adding staff wildly, you can't expand services wildly. All those things are just going to eat into that levy capacity, increase taxes, and put you up against the prop two and a half wall that much sooner. So we were against it just before COVID. I can't stress this enough. We cut all the budgets back. Every forecast for the prior three years before the pandemic showed us requiring an override by year four or five in those forecasts. It's only that reset that constraining, instead of having a normal budget increase of three and a half or 4%, we had a 1%. That's what gave us that little bit of gap. That's why the forecasts now are showing that you're not hitting that prop two and a half limit in year five anymore. So that's, you know, it goes the other way too. Increase a few percent, that wall's gonna come that much sooner. Thank you, John, for that clarification. That's precisely what I wanted to uh, clarify for the benefit of uh, taxpayers. Um, at this point, uh, I invite questions. Uh, let me ask for questions first from the Board of Selectmen. Uh, does anyone have a question or comment they'd like to offer? Scott Rogers. Yeah, thanks, uh, John. Appreciate the update, and I think it's really significant. The last time you presented on the budget, the healthcare increase, you were estimating 3% or slightly less. So to drive that down to 1% is just phenomenal. So thank you for the diligence and the, the working collaboratively with the uh, 
the other uh, groups in South Verona High School to get that to happen. Thank you, Scott. Uh, board members, any other questions or comments? Julianne? Uh, yeah, I just have a couple of um, dollar questions. So in the total general fund budget summary, under personnel board, there's a big jump from 58,000 and change to $352,784. Could you just explain what that's for? Sure, as I, as I had mentioned in the presentation, none of the uh, individual departmental budgets contain any wage or salary increases because we are in negotiations with all five unions. Under the personnel bylaw, the non-union staff receives the average of the union contract, so none of their wages are being included in there. And then uh, we are completing a classification compensation study that we're wrapping up uh, hopefully within the next week or so. Uh, and so any modifications to the pay ranges or grades that come out of that study uh, would need to be uh, accommodated as well. So basically all the wage increases are in that account for the time being. What happens is you really can't compare year to year because every year merit increases are budgeted there. And then if, uh, if an employee has a satisfactory performance evaluation, then it's transferred out in, into the departmental budget. Uh, so that, uh, that's why that account always bounces around. But anytime you see it with a significant figure like it has right now, it means we're in negotiations. Okay, um, thank you for that. And under the table where it's revenue and expenditure summary, the um, free cash is going from 805, wait, yeah, 805,000 to 2,000,000 and change. I guess in order to really understand this, we would have to know what the 2020 or 2019 free cash amount was, because I imagine on the table, it's just 21 and 22, which we considerably decreased. So- Yeah, it was a comparable amount. I wanna say it was somewhere around seven or 800,000. So that, that it was uh, in 2021. So we did not uh, make a, a in 2021, we had to cut the free cash pay-as-go capital as well. So it was, I want to say it was around 800000 or so, uh, maybe a little bit less than 2022. Because remember now, we cut to hold uh, reserves in liquid. Instead of spending it on capital, we held it in case we needed it. And then in fiscal 2021, when we closed out, that fed into fiscal 2022, all the revenue numbers were down because we were in the throes of the pandemic. So we didn't generate a lot of free cash at the close of that fiscal year. So that was the, the multi-year ripple effect. Okay. All right, thank you. That's You're it. Welcome. Thank you, Julian. Uh, any other board members wishing to ask a question? Seeing none, uh, let me turn now to the appropriations committee, appropriations committee members. Uh, Anyone have a comment or question? Uh, Tim Kalin. Thanks, Mr. Chair. Uh, <clears throat> just a couple of questions. Um, John, you had mentioned that um, the payment, the $1.7 million payment plan from Southboro is ending. So we'll be losing $232,000 out of the budget for that. Yes, I don't know if receipts. And then we're also gonna see 
an increase to 255,000 into the regional OPEB? Uh, no, no. The, uh, in the town's uh, other post-employment trust fund, we, there's $300,000 in, in the tax base uh, budget for uh, a transfer in. I had proposed to the board that another 250,000 be released from ARPA funds to get us back to the $550 figure, which is what we should be putting in every year. So we didn't put it in for two years, so we're short a million dollars. And this year, without the release of ARPA funds, uh, we'll be short another $250,000 uh, into that OPEB account. Um, all right. That that yeah. That that I get. There was there was two hundred fifty five in there for for Worcester for for regional. Oh, I'm sorry. That's uh, that's the Worcester regional pension uh, liability. Uh, yes, uh, Worcester regional uh, pension. Yes. So we're gonna we're gonna lose two hundred thirty two thousand from Southboro. We're gonna see an increase of two hundred fifty five thousand into Worcester. Correct. Yes, that's the increase for the pension. Yep. So that's a net of almost $500,000 per year that we're gonna to have to make up somewhere in our, in our tax base, correct? Yeah, that, those are two budget drivers for sure. Okay. And then in sidewalks, there was a $1.5 million investment in sidewalks. And then there was, all, you also mentioned that we need two to $300,000 per year in investment or maintaining the sidewalks is that correct so is that in addition to the 1.5 million yeah so the so the 1.5 million is the backlog so the, that's what's needed for repairs for the sidewalks that currently exist uh like anything you know unless we take some one-time revenues and try to sort of buy down that backlog uh we're going to need another you know 100 or 200,000 or 200 to 300,000 a year uh to to get that to start investing so it, it just comes down to do you you know you can play it's kind of like you're gonna buy a car okay you, you you put a down payment on a lump sum and then you put the rest on a payment plan it all depends on how much you want to put down on the down payment will affect your payment plan you know if you want to use our one and a half million dollars of arpa funds and take care of the entire backlog of uh of uh sidewalks then we'd be on a different funding schedule if we to use, use none, then we're going to need to do at least two or $300,000 every year for the foreseeable future. So does that make sense? Okay. How right. they no, it makes, it makes perfect sense. Cause I think it's important to, to understand that there's going to be an additional $500,000 shortfall that we're going to face in the future. And then if we don't use the opera money for sidewalks, that's going to be an additional 300. Now we're up to an $800,000 shortfall or, or, increase in budgetary needs in the future, which matches the three and a half percent that we typically increase the budget. So though the increase in budget is going to be chewed up by just these three things, if I'm correct. Oh, yeah, there's, uh, and, and health insurance could, could be the equal of all of them. You know, a 10% increase in health insurance, if things go bad, uh, you know, is a, is a, you know, five, $600,000 increase. So but that's these why- things, these, these three things we know, like these, yes. these are happening. Okay. If right, I, so if I, I just I, think, I'm sorry, go ahead. Um, if I may, one of the, I just want to add one of the reasons why uh, we brought forward through the capital planning process, the idea of, of, you know, 
fixing the backlog, a partially fixing a part of the backlog of uh, sidewalks is when you look at it from, it ticks so many boxes. It's a, it's a, it's a great investment in that it reduces your operating expenses down the line, right? It, um, it's walkability, it's getting people outside, it's uh, the second highest priority of the um, Master Plan Implementation Committee. It's ADA accessibility, you know, because we're adding ramps and things of that nature and widening sidewalks so that, uh, so that they're more accessible. That's why that came forward. Um, but regardless, um, that backlog is going to have to be addressed and worked into our financing plans because you can't just not fix things. You know, we've gone from a, you know, from a priority, a big picture, and we continue to refine our indicators and the things that we're trying to improve upon. You know, it's only, you know, five years ago, six years ago that we got this pavement management plan with a real, a real viable funding plan that recurs. Uh, then when it, we're looking at culverts and, you know, there's a lot of delayed infrastructure uh, that needs work. And now we're refining the sidewalk, you know, management plan but it's gonna require dedicated funding sources. And it has to be, you know, there has to be a consistent annual investment uh, in order to start moving that needle. And if you can throw one-time money, again, just like if you're gonna buy a house, the more you put down as a down payment, the smaller your mortgage is, or the more you put down on a car, the smaller the payment plan is. And that was sort of the thought process of, if we can try to deal with some of the backlog of the sidewalks, the payment plan will be less, when we finish our complete streets prioritization plan, it will get us that much sooner talking about building new sidewalks and closing gaps and enhancing bike lanes and things of that nature. Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to highlight that you know the two two hundred thirty two thousand a year from South Road, the two fifty five going to Worcester, and then the three hundred sidewalks. That's that's eight hundred thousand dollars a year. Um, that just highlights the importance of of using the ARPA funds to, to generate budgetary flexibility in the future, because these are things that, that are, that are and they, they have to be paid for one way or the other. Um, and the, my last question is, um, I hear from people all the time, like my taxes are going up, hence the town is spending too much. Can you just explain like why what the difference is or how the, the budget is kind of spread or paid for between residential and the other tax classifications so that, that hopefully residents can have some understanding that the budget isn't going up based on how much their taxes are going up. It's more like you were talking about with the value of homes and how that all breaks out. Okay, so there's a couple of things here that, that I'd like to address. The first is, uh... Uh, as you saw uh, in the um, financial trend monitoring, we do a look back on what the average single family home tax bill has done and a forecast forward. The look back for about the last 10 years, the average single family home tax bill has gone up $189. Uh, and, and that's due to a number of uh, circumstances. But the, a big piece of that was, if you go back when the housing bubble popped and everybody's home values plummeted, our commercial industrial properties were appreciating and we were building. And so the single family homes saw years where they saw a little to no or a negative actual tax bill, uh, minus 20, I think one year. 
But when you average it all out, because things fluctuate, you're always looking for, I always look for long-term trends. How are we smoothing things out? The last 10 years have been about $189. When you look forward and you forecast forward, you see what's happening with the tax bill this year. Um, we have significant capital projects coming in, the fire station, the town hall, Peasley, sidewalks, downtown enhancements. All of these things are coming in. They're going to have tax impacts. But you're not going to see that commercial industrial growth because we're, it's largely, we're largely built out. Um, so right now, uh, the, tax, uh, the tax base is about 75-25. You know, 75% residential, 25% commercial industrial. Um, if we're not successful in encouraging economic development that is uh, acceptable to the town uh, or redevelopment, then that's just going to, again, add additional pressure on the tax bill. This is just, I don't want to, don't kill the messenger here. Um, this is why, this is why we do trend monitoring. This is why we do forecasting. This is why we dedicate at least one day a night with all the boards and committees so that everybody hears this information because when you know the tax bills go up, uh, state aid doesn't materialize. You know, when these things happen, it shouldn't catch anybody on either of these, these boards or committees. It shouldn't catch anybody by surprise. All of the pressure for the next five years is going to be on, on the tax bill. That's just the nature of how things are. Are working up we are becoming a mature community you know anything that constrains economic development moving forward will just be a piece of that puzzle so thanks John. I, ju I just think it's important for the the public to hear to hear that that information so thank you thank you for answering yeah. those questions yeah i have look i have manager friends of mine who are in mature or declining communities and literally all they do every year is talk about cutting budgets, cutting services, and increasing taxes because there's you know no place else for them to go. That's a, that's a tough spot to be in. We've managed ourselves well uh, for the last you know decade and a half. That's why we have at least, you know, we've got at least five years looking out now of ways to maneuver, but we still have significant needs. And why do we spend so much time hammering the legislative delegation on infrastructure funding? We don't have it. We don't have the broad-based economic, uh, the broad-based taxes that they have that fluctuate capital gains, income. We don't have that. They need to share more of that to take care of the infrastructure. And infrastructure isn't a Northborough issue or, or a, a neighboring community issue. It's a Commonwealth issue, and it has to get addressed. All set, Tim. Yes, thank you, Mr. Chair. Okay. Uh, any other members of the, pro uh, and I'll just preface this by saying the Appropriations Committee has been reviewing the various aspects of the budget over the last uh, month or couple of months. Uh, so this is all familiar information to them. They may not have questions at this point. Those questions have been answered in previous meetings. Uh, that said, uh, any other member of the uh, Appropriations Committee? Yes, uh, Tony Petit. Hi, thank you. Um, Mr. Chair, um, I'm just, it's not necessarily an issue that comes before the Appropriations Committee where our job is to um, simply um, make recommendations on, on town warrant articles. But, you know, I certainly, I just wanted to express my 
my uh, sense that um, the way in which the any, any external aid that we get coming in um, is probably best spent on moving forward capital projects um, because there's not too much else to help us make up for the the uh, the backlog that we've incurred on these capital projects due to lost revenues during the um, COVID crisis. Thank you, Tony. Uh, other members, anything? Yes. Uh, hearing, yes, uh, Rick Niebuhr. I'd like to say, I don't think many people know about the hard work and uh, dedication that John has put into his job over these many years. And I was glad to see our representatives earlier uh, comment on his uh, knowledge and dedication to his job. Uh, he makes it look very easy for the rest of us. It's very clear and concise what he gives us. And uh, we re I know we really appreciate it. Right now, as in, in the past decades now, we really can't give you any answers as far as what we uh, vote on for budgets or how we can tell you how we feel. But our final meeting isn't until uh, April 7th, which we will be voting on the various town articles and the budgets. So right now, all I can say is for us and the rest of the committee is that I think we're very pleased with what we've seen so far especially with some of these town budgets only coming in, actually a 0% increase with only the uh, uh, collective bargaining holding things up right now for the final tally. All in all, I really wanna uh, recommend John for his work and uh, dedication over these years and really helping us do our job. Great, thank you, Rick. Okay. Uh, yes, John. Just if I may, I'd be remiss. This isn't just me. This is a massive team effort with the department heads, the boards and committees. But in particular, there are three people I would like to call out. Jason Little, our finance director, who we, we were hanging out here all weekend, finishing up stuff. Um, uh, Becca Meekins, the assistant town administrator, and uh, Lisa Trost, who is our treasure collector. That's our, our financial team. And then expanded to our department heads. But this is a huge group effort. And I'd also mention the superintendent. I think I talk to the superintendent more often than I speak with my wife lately, which is a sad commentary on, on work at the moment. But the communication and the collaborative style of everybody working here in the boards and committees, appropriations, financial planning, the board, school committee, everybody working together, uh, looking at the same information, agreeing on the, on the information. Um, but that financial team, those are the people that are uh, particularly Jason Little, who has just been uh, just been putting in a credible amount of hours and effort to, to get us over the line this year. This was a very, very unusual and difficult year with uh, new auditors, all the compliance issues we've had to deal with and all the last minute uh, twists and turns with regard to the budget. It's been very challenging this year, but, uh, but uh, I'm very confident we're in good shape heading into town meeting with, uh, with good uh, reasonable budgets that uh, hopefully all the boards and committees will support. Thank you, John. And uh, certainly uh, this board acknowledges uh, the uh, all the work of the people you've mentioned uh, 
uh, in contributing to the budget development and difficult exercise of trying to match uh, revenues to expenditures and keep us in the in a solvent state of mind. Uh, any other questions from the Appropriations Committee? Seeing none, any other questions or comments from the Board of Selectmen? Julianne. Yeah, uh, just a quick question. So um, is, do we have an exact number on revenue shortfall from the pandemic? Uh, no, it depends on how you look at it. Um, uh, because part of the revenue shortfall, the formula was actually looking at uh, not just uh, not just a reduction, but the loss in revenue uh, moving forward. And so uh, we were working through that process with our auditors and um, uh, then the final rule came out and uh, allowed us to take a standard deduction. So uh, so we never we didn't have to complete that exercise. Um, but it's not just the lost revenue, uh, it's the constraint, the lack of growth of revenue as well. So, you know, how do you characterize lost revenue? In fact, that was what all the debate was over the ARPA formula. People were arguing and, and going round and round about how do you define what's lost revenue? Like, do you include, for instance, the fact that we lost all the recreation fees, so now recreation is no longer self-sufficient? You know, do you include the fact that the MWRA sent us a 200 and some odd thousand dollar bill uh, because of the shifting uh, consumption of water amongst its members. Um, all that stuff factors into it uh, that creates a financial hardship for us. So at the end of the day, because of all that difficulty, that's why the US Treasury said, you know what, if you're getting less than $10 million in ARPA funding, you can just take it as a standard deduction. So just, just for, for an example, um, a, a good portion of our budget is meals taxes, excise taxes, that whole section of the pie chart. Um, how, so that would be like a number that you would probably know what we lost there. Well, we know, we know when things, the tough thing is I don't, we know when the economy shut down and the revenues dropped off in those categories. Um, but what you don't, we don't know then is, well, if the economy had continued, you know, how much would motor vehicle excise have gone up? How much would revenues from hotel and meals gone up? It's just a tricky, it's tricky thing to, um, uh, to, to quantify. Um, but we did, uh, ultimately, uh, we saw, uh, we, I think we budgeted a 14% reduction, but we didn't see that full amount uh, come through. So, and then you have aid coming in from uh, CARES Act that came in and backfilled things that we would have otherwise spent money on, so. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Julianne. Uh, Kristen Wickstead. Hi, I'm just gonna throw my hat in the ring here and I apologize if it's, not the most intelligent question because this isn't uh, my strongest suit so i'm learning as i go but are there um are there other capital projects that um we're behind schedule on like is there a list of things yes we have a up and trying to figure yeah we out. have a six year that we we have maintained for over a decade a six-year capital improvement program that lists out every project we're can we're 
uh, thinking about doing for the next six years. Uh, and so, uh, so that exists. Uh, the Financial Planning Committee uh, just reviewed the updated six-year capital improvement plan at their meeting um, uh, last Wednesday. Uh, that is all of the packets for those meetings are up on the um, up on the town's website. No, uh, so you I know, can look I at that six-year that, plan. Yeah, I know those are there. I don't mean for you to explain that to me, but just is there a list of things that we're behind schedule on because of the pandemic? Well, that is the list. The that, things that, is, that we're behind schedule on. Well, that, that is the list. And the way it works, uh, a six-year capital improvement plan is a living document. So you never have enough money to do all of the projects, right? There's always more projects than you have in funding. So the idea is you want to smooth that out and try to spread out those projects over the six years. So uh, we had less funding in 21 and 22. So what we had is we just had more projects clustering in, 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 in those years. This year, we had a good free cash, so we're getting uh, a lot of those projects uh, cleaned out. But as you look forward, projects always move up or back depending on available resources. So one of the things that we were looking at is we know next year that we're coming forward with at least a fire station building project and potentially a town hall uh, proposal. So next year in the capital improvement plan, you have an $800,000 fire engine, a $900,000 roof replacement at Proctor, and a $400,000 uh, DEP compliance issue uh, for the tight tank at, at the highway garage. So those three are there. We're not going to generate enough uh, revenue and free cash to pay as you go for those projects, which means either we find other revenue sources to, to deal with those capital projects, or we're going to be issuing debt for those projects next year, in addition to the fire station and anything else that we're doing. So those projects are about $2.1 million in total. And if you issue debt, you'd be looking at somewhere between another $40 to $50 on the average single family tax bill for the next 10 years. So that's why in talking with the Financial Planning Committee and appropriations, this idea is, look, they're all needs. And so we can, the more of those capital projects we can get cleared out, then we get a little breathing room and we spread out the remaining projects so that, that we don't get a spike in the tax impact. Because what's going to happen is next year, we're coming forward with a fire station one way or another. That is going to be at least a $16 million project. It's going to have uh, hundreds of dollars of tax impact on the average single family tax bill. Okay, thanks. So it's a question of like juggling lots of balls in the air. Well, we had, we delayed, uh, we delayed uh, several large pieces of DPW equipment and a police cruiser. Um, and then we didn't get, and then there's the opportunity cost where if you don't have this free cash, we never got to do the projects that we normally would have done. So right. it, everything bunched up on us. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. And if I could just add there, John, um, the past practice prior to say 2010 or so, um, the past practice had been to bundle most, if not all of our capital expenditures into debt issuances and apply a much larger component of free cash to subsidize the operating budget. And that is basically the circumstance where we're paying much higher uh, financing costs 
on those debt issuances and then running into the problem in the Great Recession where free cash wasn't materializing, but we had built in a great dependency into the operational, uh, operational budget on it. And so that led in part to the reformulation of our financial policies where we weaned off the subsidy to the operational budget from free cash and instead have this mindset of applying one-time revenues in the form of free cash to one-time expenditures like capital projects to the extent possible to minimize uh, our debt level, uh, at least for the point of conserving it so that we can apply it to these larger scale building projects or capital infrastructure projects that inevitably will require to be financed because of their scale. Exactly. What we try to do is spread out the uh, equipment so that we have a, um, on an annual basis, we're replenishing our equipment, our DPW trucks, and, and some of these trucks are, you know, $300,000. So we were spreading those out. So we're not financing those. And we need to make room for, you know, fire station, town hall, Peasley school. These are the big projects that we should be funding with debt. And we're trying to do everything else on a pay as you go basis. Um, and if you can do that, that's great. The problem is uh, on a pay as you go basis, you know, if we generate a million on a typical year, a million, million and a half in uh, budget surplus that we can use to do pay as you go capital, that, that you don't get very far if you've got a, you know, a million dollar roof project, you know, so those, those, those interspersed between the routine, smaller uh, equipment and then the really big projects, you have things like a fire engine for $800,000 or a Peasley, I'm sorry, the Proctor School roof for, you know, $900,000. So uh, if you don't find a way to pay as you go for those, they have to be done and you'll be, you'll, you're just going to have to incur financing. And we're going to be incurring uh, a significant amount of debt impact for that fire station project. There's just no way around it. Uh, hopefully our friends at the legislature will get us a little bit of money, but they're not going to get us $16 million. So. Thank you, John, for that clarification. And uh, Leslie Rutan. Hey, John, quick question about OPIB. Um, are we completely self-governing in terms of how we handle that and getting on, on back on track with that? Or do we ever get any kind of guidance or push from the state in terms of how they would like us to deal with it? Sure. Uh, it's it's think, of, think of OPEB like you think of your retirement account, OK? Mm -hmm. Uh, if you get, if you look at it and you get some professional assistance, which we have from an actuary to look at our liability and to come up with a funding plan for us, uh, then it's up to you to be disciplined enough to actually fund it. Nobody's going to make you put money into your retirement account, but ultimately uh, you're either going to be well off and okay in 30 years, or you're going to be in a, a difficult situation. OPEB is like that. We are required under the Government Accounting Standards Board to measure and to report our OPEB, li our OPEB liability. And right now, uh, our OPEB liability is about, uh, is about 45, uh, 45, $46 million. And our funding ratio is a little over 11%. So, um, so we're only at 11% of where we really need to be. But the state has not mandated any, a funding schedule like they have for pension. Your pension, your unfunded pension liability must be fully funded by 2040. Your, uh, our Worcester Regional Retirement is a plan 
is on a funding schedule to be fully funded by 2036. That's why I say there's nothing you need to do there except to Tim's point, pay a 10%, 11% assessment increase every year. It's significant. OPEB isn't, hasn't been mandated. So it's really about us managing ourselves well. It's just like your retirement account. You know, if you start in your 20s, it's, you're in pretty decent shape by the time you're 50. If you start when you're in your 40s, you're in bad shape by the time you're 50 and you have to put more money in. The expense doesn't go away. Ultimately, what winds up happening is if we don't put uh, regular significant investments in OPEB, when those retirees start pulling benefits, a greater amount of our operating budget is going to be going to pay for those services, uh, for those benefits rather, and they won't be able to go for the services that the residents need. So you want to be looking at a 30-year funding plan and you want to be putting meaningful money aside, not 20 or 30,000. We put, we've been putting a half a million dollars aside. Uh, I think at the peak, it was 550,000. We should be putting $1.2 million aside a year to really be on a, a funding schedule. And so, you know, we work with the actuary and I said, well, what's the, what's the minimum sort of like stem the bleeding and like at least a half a million dollars, but you should be trying to increase that every year. So we're not hitting that mark and we're not hitting the, the mark we should, but we're not even hitting the minimum mark right now. And we skipped a million dollars of payment to get through the pandemic, which is perfectly acceptable. Just like if you lose your job, it's acceptable not to put money in your retirement account. But when you get back on your feet, you got to get back on track and make and get back making those payments that you were making before. And then if you can, ratchet them up a little bit to make up for that lost time. And that's kind of where we are with OPEP. But it's really about just managing yourselves. That's that last goal that I covered at the beginning of my presentation is to make sure that we're taking into consideration, you know, the, our long run solvency. You know, it if you get people on boards and committees that don't have good perspective and don't have good information, you can build three, four or five big projects. Everybody gets what they want. And all of a sudden your debt service is crushing your operating budget. You know, it's, so it's about balancing these things and, and smoothing them out. And that's what we do a good job of is smoothing them out, but it means kind of constraining everything to a sustainable level. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you, John. I just, would emphasize that uh, this is a time value of money issue. The dollars you put in today are gonna to be much more valuable than the dollars you put in two years from now or five years from now and 10 years from now because the dollars you put in today have that much longer time horizon to, to earn investment returns. Hey, listen, I'll, I can give you a perfect example. We put $3,050,000 into our OPEB trust fund. Its current balance is 5.1 million as of December 31st of 2021. That's how much we've earned in interest. Our funding ratio is at 10% right now. Uh, I wish we had put that other million dollars in because we'd be that much better off, but we capitalized on some pretty aggressive, you know, economic booing there. But we only put $3 million in and we have $5.1 million in and we started doing this about five, uh, 2015 was the first year that we put any money in. So it, it matters, so. And one last thing on OPEB, our bond rating, our bond, when we go out to borrow cash, the bond rating agencies rate us in terms of our risk to loan, to, to people loaning us money. 
one of the things they focus on is the fact that we have very low manageable debt and that we have a uh, funding plan for our OPEB. In addition to, we have very healthy reserves. That means when you go out, it's just like when you go to get a mortgage for a home. If your credit rating is really good, you will pay you know, a, a, a couple basis points less than somebody whose credit is poor. And it can save hundreds or millions of dollars over the life of a loan. So all of this stuff is interrelated. And we are about, we're in the near term of going out for some debt issuances where the bond rating agencies will be reevaluating us. We're going to be going out for the single largest debt issuance in our history. So we want to make sure our reserves are healthy, that we got a, a good funding schedule for OPEB, that our debt is down low, and that we're managing ourselves well. Thank you, John. Uh, any other questions from members of the board? Uh, seeing none, this is a public hearing. Uh, if you are among the attendees on the Zoom webinar, uh, you can raise your hand and we can bring you in if you have any comment on this uh, review of the fiscal year 2023 proposed budget. Got uh, Laura Zeiten, bring you in, Laura. Hi, it's Laura Zeiten, 17 Franklin Circle. Thank you for the update on the budget. I'm just curious if there's any plans for the White Cliffs other than the debt service for next year. Yes, uh, we are currently reviewing proposals for um, consultants to help and assist the town to market that property. Uh, we're reviewing some budget right now and we are getting ready to schedule a meeting of the committee to move forward with that. Uh, yes, Laura, you have more? Can you, sorry, can you elaborate what you mean by market? Sure. The property? So, yep. So, uh, um, so we went through a uh, better than a, a year plus process to uh, get a good baseline, to uh, get information about the property. Uh, and we looked at uh, potential reuse options for us. Uh, we used a consultant to run pro formas on the numbers and give us the top three possible reuses uh, for that structure. And the top three were housing, event space, or a municipal use. Uh, the committee looked at those three and uh, the pro formas, the, in other words, the, the analysis showed that uh, none of them were truly economically viable uh, in terms of what the committee had envisioned. Um, so the committee asked the consultants to go back and look at uh, what's the absolute minimum amount of uh, restoration would be needed uh, to preserve the building. And then uh, we were seeking consultants to help us market the building. And to market it, I mean, to look at partnering with a private sector uh, firm or individual or group to uh, return the project, the property back to some viable use as an event center or uh, whatever, the, whatever the case may be. And, uh, and to see if we can work with them to come up with a viable plan that it more than likely will uh, patch together uh, you know, municipal resources, grant funding, donations, uh, and uh, private investment. 
So unfortunately, it is a extreme. It is a very extremely expensive building to rehab, and uh, that is making it uh, prohibitively costly. The other issue is, you know, the we looked at it as a municipal use, but the committee kind of ruled that out as being too uh, too expensive. And um, the probably the best use would be what it was for, and that is some form of an event uh, uh, event facility. However, nobody was looking to invest in invent invent in. Sorry, I'm tired. Invest in invent, invest in event facilities during a pandemic when the economy was shut down. So that sort of stalled uh, that process a little bit. So that's what we're looking to do. So is this being marketed for sale or just for partners to be able no, market, to reuse? No, marketed for marketed for reuse. In other words, we're we're trying to find a private investor who will come in and work with the town to preserve the building and get it back to a viable economic use. Thank you. Is this something that the committee is working on and overseeing the White Cliffs? That, that is the next phase for the committee. Yes. Okay. And when is that gonna be reconvening? Uh, within the next couple of weeks, we're trying to schedule a meeting. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you, Laura. Uh, any other members of the public wish to comment on the fiscal year 2023 proposed budget? Uh, seeing none. Uh, I always have this problem with hearings. Do I need a motion to close the public hearing? Yeah, Mr. Sure. Chair, I move we vote to close the public hearing. Do I have a second? Second. Moved by Scott Rogers, seconded by Leslie Rutan. Uh, this is a roll call vote. Kristen Wickstead. Aye. Julianne Hirsch. Aye. Scott Rogers. Aye. Leslie Rutan. Aye. And I, Jason Pro, vote aye. Um, hearing is closed. I want to thank the Appropriations Committee for their participation this evening. And uh, yeah, I guess uh, you have a little bit uh, more on your schedule do leading up to town meeting. So uh, we look forward to seeing the recommendations from appropriations. Uh, Rick, do you want to uh, yeah. <laughs> close your meeting? I'll entertain a motion to uh, just uh, to close our meeting. So moved. Is there a second? Second. Okay, we have a, a motion has been made uh, by uh, Tony Petit and seconded by George Brankel to close our meeting. All in favor? Aye. The uh, vote is unanimous to close our meeting. So therefore I dismiss our committee. It is 9.57 p.m. Uh, you are free to stay on for the rest of the selectmen's meeting. If uh, it goes on any longer, otherwise we'll see you this Thursday at our regular meeting. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, members of the Appropriations Committee. Thank you. And I'm, uh, as the chief is uh, showing the Appropriations Committee members to the door, I'm bringing in uh, Town moderator Fred George.
And our next item of business, it's past the hour of 7.40 p.m. We have uh, Fred Georgetown moderator, and this is a discussion in consultation with the board regarding the date, time, and location of annual town meeting. Welcome, Fred. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Glad to be here. Uh, in our packets, we have, uh, if I can scroll to it here. Um, having some discussion about uh, the circumstances of annual town meeting this year. Uh, the prior two years, we've had annual town meeting at an outdoor venue, the Algonquin Regional High School football field, um, delayed from its usual scheduled uh, um, time per town charter of the last uh, Monday in April, weeknight evenings. So this discussion is just following up to see uh, where we are and whether we have a basis at this point or not to, uh, to consider uh, changing from our regularly scheduled time to another date time location. Um, John, would you like to review just a little bit of the information we have provided here? Sure, I know we started to get into the discussion uh, at your last meeting about the exact costs of uh, holding an outside uh, town meeting versus in, in our typical indoor at the auditorium. So I did ask the uh, town clerk to compile some information and he has the estimate, and this is the Delta between our regular town meeting versus outdoor at about $14,000. There's a couple of expenses. Uh, there's, he's got uh, $1,100 in there for cooling fans, which we probably don't need at this time of year, but the estimate that I gave you, you know, 10 to $12,000, that's what it costs. Um, and you have the detail in the memo here uh, for additional police details, the media, the chairs, the tents and so forth. Uh, in terms of um, just kind of the state of affairs, uh, there's uh, two memos in your packet, as I said, the one from town clerk, and there's one from Kristen Black, the health agent, who basically is uh, indicating that, you know, uh, there are currently no COVID-19 restrictions or recommendations at the state level for large gatherings. So everybody's kind of back on their own to determine how, how they want to conduct themselves. Um, I did ask the town clerk to look at uh, and get some information regarding how people are moving forward. Um, not that we have to do what other people do, but it gives you a sense of, of kind of what's happening out there. And um, for in the fall of 2021, so our, our town meeting was in May of 2021. But in the fall of 2021, Berlin, Boylston, Hudson, Shrewsbury, Southboro, and Westboro all had town meetings inside. For the spring of 2022, Berlin, Boylston, Hudson, Shrewsbury, Southboro, and, Wester and Westboro are all um, having town meetings inside. Um, I did speak with uh, Kristen Wickstead. I'm not, yeah, Kristen Wickstead. Kristen Black. I spoke to Kristen Wickstead as well, but in this case, I mean Kristen Black. Um, and she indicated uh, kind of uh, expanding on the discussion from your last meeting that um, it, it is very reasonable and feasible to create a mask only section in the auditorium. So the auditorium hold the high school auditorium holds, uh, I think, 800 people. We typically on average get 250 to 300 people uh, at town meeting. Um, you could also uh, hold a, uh, a section aside reserved for people who, if you want to sit in that section, you're required to wear a mask. A number of communities have, uh, have done that, uh, including Westboro. They don't get a tremendous amount of people in that area, but anybody who feels that they would, that would be a viable uh, option. 
So uh, that's the information. Uh, it's up to the board uh, in consultation with the moderator to determine whether or not uh, you want to move forward with a, uh, the regular town meeting on April 25th and 26th or an outdoor um, um, town meeting on April 30th. So those are your options. Thank you very much, John. Uh, and town moderator, Fred George, uh, would you care to offer your perspective? Well, I think the perspective is uh, taking into consideration the uh, input we've had from uh, the various uh, individuals, uh, you know, the um, health agent in particular as to, as to what the options are and what the potential impact may be. But I will remind this board once again that it is at the, at the decision of the board as to the time and the location of this meeting. Uh, my key component and my interest is based on making sure that this is a decision that really considers the, the, uh, the citizens of Northboro and how comfortable they are in, uh, in being either indoors or outdoors. Uh, so, you know, Mr. Chair, I have no particular preference one way or the other. I just want it to be a healthy, safe, and quiet town meeting. Thank you very much, Fred. Uh, yes, John. Uh, one other piece of information uh, that might be helpful to you is uh, in talking with our health agent earlier today, um, we have uh, uh, test kits and staff that will be available uh, the night of town meeting. If anybody at the night of town meeting, if you've got a sniffle or a tickle in your throat and you're not sure about whether or not you should go into town meeting, we're gonna offer free testing the night of town meeting uh, on the spot for anybody who would like it. Thank you, John. Uh, Kristen Wickstead. Is that going to happen no matter what? Um, because it sounded in her letter like it was an option that I would love to take them up on, but- um, Oh, I'm, I'm telling them we're doing it. No okay. matter what we do, no matter where the no matter where yeah. it gets held, uh, yeah. we have the test kits and we have the staff. Mm -hmm. Why wouldn't we do it? Uh, it's just an added level. And again, it's it's not mandatory. We're not going to be shoving you know uh, Q-tips up your nose as you're trying to collect your town meeting warrant booklet. It's okay. if you want to. You know, uh, again, everybody's being responsible adults. If you have you know if you're not sure if you've got allergies or you know you're concerned, no problem. Show up a half hour early. We'll test you no charge you'll have the results in 15 minutes yeah that's nice um so if i can continue um sure. i did have so we we all got i think all the same emails about this and there was one couple that seemed to want it to be outside again um and then most of the other people um either didn't really seem to have a strong opinion or if they said inside is okay, um, some of them really feel strongly about that mask only area. So I would definitely, if it is gonna be inside, I would definitely want a good sized mask only area. And um, I don't know how we block that off. So someone without a mask isn't sitting right behind them. Do we block off several rows? Yeah, so we'll rope off. distance barrier. Yeah, through the chair, we'd rope off a rope off a section and put appropriate signage saying, "If you sit here, you're required to wear a mask and you're required to leave 
you know, a certain number of seats in between you and the other person. From what I understand in talking with other towns and what Kristen Black has found and Andy, uh, Andy Dowd, our town clerk, is that there's a few people that use it and it's great if it's there, if, th if that's what makes them feel comfortable, but it has not been a capacity issue. It's just, it's been a handful of folks that have used it and it really isn't hard to administer. No, and that's, but I think it's really important to have that. So the people who do want that. I'm in agreement on that. Come. Yeah. Yes. Yes, I think any indoor venue choices would still have some provisions for people who aren't comfortable to be masked and to have a separate area where they can uh, uh, sit together uh, away from other people who are unmasked. Okay. Uh, that's right. a very simple thing that, that can be done uh, to, uh, to alleviate We also, um, if I'm sorry, Mr. Chairman, I'm interrupting. Sure, ahead, I, I, I was going to add too is, you know, we can provide KN95 masks for people as well. And if somebody legitimately is immunocompromised, uh, we, can, we can make sure that we have appropriate um, masks for them. Again, we want people to feel comfortable. Uh, Leslie Rutan. Yeah, I guess, you know, this is something I'm just trying to bottom line here, which is that, um, you know, obviously there are expenses involved with having it outdoors. And I think if we felt that there was an absolute necessity to have it outdoors, then we would, of course, do that. I think we would pay whatever we needed to pay in order to have town meeting. We need to have town meeting. But I don't see a justification here to having it outside. I, I think I saw maybe one email where someone did express concern. And I think in any situation, there will be people who won't be quite happy. Um, but I, I get the impression from, other, from people I've spoken with that people are generally comfortable being, being indoors. Um, and as long as we do provide an area where they can go and know that that's available to them, they could even change their mind while they're sitting in there. They may say, hey, look, I'm more comfortable if I go to the masked area or vice versa and come out and, and, and sit in the other area. So as long as that's available, I think that's uh, good. But I just don't see a justification for having it outside at this point. Thank you, Leslie. Uh, and I would just observe that um, I, I don't think I see a justification at this point to change the date uh, or the location. Um, this is a different circumstance than it was two years ago when we were first coming through the, the very initial part of COVID. We didn't have vaccinations. We didn't have boosters. Um, uh, there was a great deal uh, more risk, I think. Um, two years later, I think we're in a better situation uh, from a vaccination and booster standpoint. I think people feel a bit more comfortable. Um, I certainly uh, see them in some of the common locations like supermarkets and, uh, and, uh, and the like. Um, there is still the case that uh, if there was an uptick in uh, um, some variant or something like that, and the health situation uh, was deemed to be more significant or severe, the town moderator still has the authority to uh, postpone town meeting uh, in recognition of that kind of circumstance. So, um, so it's not like we're closing the door on anything. Uh, if there is a significant enough adverse development, then we still have some flexibility uh, with what we do. But for our purposes here tonight, I think I'm comfortable uh, with keeping our scheduled date uh, um, 
indoors at ARHS with the appropriate accommodations uh, that we've already discussed uh, for people who would prefer to be masked and have a seating area that is uh, displaced somewhat from most of the regular seating. Uh, any other comments, questions? Julianne Hirsch. Well, I hate to be the dissenter, but I'm not comfortable with indoors um, because of the, the new BA2 variant that is making its way here. And I think we're seeing some indications in wastewater and number of cases. It's, um, you, you know, I'd like you to elaborate a little bit, Jason, like what, if, if those numbers continue to go up, do, should we speak to Kristen and say at what point do we put the brakes on indoors? I, I just, um, I, I'm, uh, you know, I know that our vaccination rate is high in Northboro, but now there's talk of recommendations for people over 50 getting a second booster. It's, um, and the, regarding the cost differential is, we have a lot of public health grant money. Would any of that money cover an outdoor meeting? And, and, uh, before so before I relinquish my my time um my other question is I two years ago when we were deciding on indoor outdoor there was a possibility of doing it in the gymnasium because of better ventilation what was is is that possibly on the table uh Jim has worse ventilation as somebody who has suffered through uh two uh a college uh, high school graduations in that gym there is very little ventilation in that gym. Why were we talking about because we could open doors or something? Why were we talking about? We were talking about it as an expansion of capacity to space people out more. Right. Auditorium plus the gymnasium as an expansion area for spacing purposes. Okay. Thank you. So anyway, the questions are the question is would any of the public health grants cover the outdoor meeting? No, you'd have to release ARPA funding to do that. Unless the, you're talking about our existing, like our our uh, Greater Boroughs Health Grant, the funding, the yeah, I mean, the, we 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 would we would use ARPA funding to to pay for it if you're going to go outside. That would be the appropriate. Source. So you're saying unequivocally that none of the grants that um, our health agent has received would cover. None of the existing grants are, would be for that, no. COVID prevention? No. Okay. Uh, any other comments, questions, members of the board? In that case, uh, do I have a motion? Mr. Chairman. Um, since it appears that we are going to vote on April 25th, I will make the motion. I move the board vote to approve and execute the April 25th, 2022 annual town meeting warrant. Uh, Julian, we're not doing the town meeting warrant at the moment. We're doing a motion to make a statement at this time, whether or not we, as a board, decide the circumstances are sufficient to move from the regularly scheduled time and date and location. 
So I think I'm looking for a motion from Scott Rogers. Yes, Mr. Chair. So I move the board vote to keep the regularly scheduled town meeting, annual town meeting on Monday, April 25th, 2022 at 6 p.m. in the Algonquin School Auditorium. Second. Moved by Scott Rogers, seconded by Leslie Rutan. Any further discussion? Seeing none, this is a roll call vote. Kristen Wickstead? Aye. Julianne Hirsch? No. Scott Rogers? Aye. Leslie Rutan? Aye. And I, Jason Pro, vote aye. So the motion carries four in favor, one opposed. Um, so for, for this purpose, then, the Board of Selectmen is not at this time recommending any uh, change. Uh, yes, time moderator Fred George. Mr. Chair, I, you know, I think it was discussed earlier, but I think we want to make sure that everyone understands this clearly is that we will make every effort collectively to monitor what's going on. And if things should change significantly or the guidelines should change, we can certainly consider other alternatives. But right now, I, I think the decision that I've heard is April 25th is the uh, date for the meeting, and we can go forward with that unless we you know receive some other information that changes you know the overall safety concern for all of our citizens uh thank you frank yes exactly right um we've uh determined tonight that uh, for the moment we're staying with our current date uh, i don't anticipate the board of selectmen uh, uh will be changing unless there's a significant health issue that arises and is identified as being of sufficient uh level to cause us to reconsider. And then the timing of that will uh, right, come into play with the town moderator's discretion about uh, timing. Uh, very good, thank you very much. Uh, Fred, thank you. And uh, we look forward to seeing you at town meeting, wherever it is. <laughs> I'll be there with bells on. Great, thank you, Fred. Thank Thanks, you so Bob. much. Good evening. Good night. Thank you. And next item is a uh, topic of ARPA process discussion regarding ARPA process. Um, John, do you want to uh, uh, just initiate this discussion? Sure. Uh, so uh, in your packet, I provided you with a memo um, given the discussion that took place at your last meeting and some of the uh, discussion that's ongoing in the community. I'm recommending that we dedicate rather than get into it as a piece of one of your board meetings that we dedicate a meeting, a joint meeting like we do with the financial trend monitoring uh, to uh, dedicate it to ARPA discussion and take public input. Uh, and the board can decide from there what they would like to do with the process. But I'm proposing uh, April 14th, which is a Thursday for that uh, for that meeting. and. Um, We'll have to figure out uh, whether or not it's in person or remote, uh, how we want to do that, but, uh, but that would be the proposal. Okay, thank you, John. Um, whether in person or remote, there would have to be an option for remote participation um, from the public, in my opinion. Right. Yeah. Uh, any questions, concerns by members of the board about that proposal. Uh, it seems like there is a lot of sentiment in the community and a lot of 
uh, uh, different or even conflicting information about some of it. And uh, does that seem like a suitable path to follow? Leslie Boutin. Yes, I think it is. I think that uh, before we go any further, I think that it's a good idea for the various boards to meet and to allow public comment um, so we can hear what needs to be heard. And um, before we go any further with the decision making, I think we, we definitely need to let residents know that we want to, to hear them out. And also, it's a good opportunity to clarify any of the any kind of misinformation that's out there. So I just think it's I think it's a very good idea to come together like that um, in a forum like that and hear people and their concerns and be able to discuss. Okay, Leslie, thank you. Uh, Scott Rogers, you had a hand up. Yeah, just to piggyback on that, I think it's um, the plan to have it as a joint meeting with other boards and have the ability of department heads and other responsible uh, personnel uh, be able to explain what might already be in progress. So you know, being able to hear some input and say, yep, we're, we're acting on that and working towards that. Or if uh, something is planned to be able to say, yep, that's in the plan. Uh, and then if there is a question or um, a misunderstanding on something, you've got the you know, responsible personnel in the organization to be able to answer those questions. So I think that's a, a good um, structure for the meeting uh, to have um, that combined uh, uh, joint action so that everybody's together at one time. Okay, thank you, Scott. Um, anyone else, Julianne? So um, four of us attended the March 23rd meeting. And um, from my perspective, I thought it was um, a very, honest conversation and extremely well organized but what so one of the things that i would like to see at the april 14th meeting is that the even the configuration of the room if we meet in a room can can give a serious message if it's um someone mentioned that it would be like the financial trends where we all sit you know, in a horseshoe and um, the public sits in, in another, like towards the back of the room. This, for me, for this to work, it has to be a dedicated listening session. And um, I, there are some groups that I would like to make sure that they can attend. And that would be groups from the schools, um, a senior representative, whether senior center or council on aging, the interfaith group, family and youth services, the health agent, veterans, and there's probably a few others that really need to be at that meeting. Um, and so I think in order for this to be as successful and kind of free flowing as the March 23rd meeting, there's some things that have to be put in place to make sure that it's um, a lot of listening. So that's my um, wish for the meeting. Thank you, Julianne. Uh, Kristen Wickstead, did you have a hand up? Yeah, I did. I don't want this to be a long answer because I feel like everyone's kind of like in the same place on this. And we all agree that that's a good idea, um, having the meeting on the 14th. But just um, it says joint meeting and it isn't really clear exactly who that is. And, and a couple people said, um, 
certain town staff people, but um, well, at some point, will we get a list of who the joint meeting is with besides the public? What, what I would anticipate is that we've, uh, through some of the public input that took place at last week's session, plus many of the emails, uh, we have a good understanding of the breadth of suggestions people are making. And from that, we have a good understanding of a lot of the uh, staff members or, or uh, groups that, that would need to you know, participate or be on hand for the meeting. So it, okay. it's obviously gonna be a very large uh, meeting with a lot of people involved and there isn't gonna be one perfect date that's gonna work for everybody. So we're just okay. going to have to put a stake in the ground, pick okay. a date and ask people if they really you know, are concerned and wanna to participate to work their schedules around that date so that they can be there and so they can participate. Okay, the date will be publicized and people will have sufficient notice uh, yeah. from this meeting and going forward to, to be able to plan for it. I like that. I like that answer. Okay, thank you. Yep. So I just, if I may, so the department heads will be there and I've already uh, confirmed with the superintendent that that date works for him. Okay, very good. Thank you, John. Uh, any other questions, comments? Uh, seeing none, so uh, I don't believe we have a motion for this, but by agreement, uh, the board would like to conduct such a meeting on the specified date. I'm sorry, what was that? April 14th, John? April 14th. Um, do you want it, what time do you want to do? Six or seven? Leslie? I would say six. <laughs> I know it's probably hard for people, you know, who are working and so forth. However, um, if we want to have people feel like we have enough time to, to listen, I don't want it to all of a sudden it's, you know, 1130 again, because then you get into, you know, child issues and people need to put kids to bed, you know, that kind of thing. So I, I frankly think the earlier, the better. I can support six o'clock. Seems agreeable. Okay, thank you. Uh, so that is settled then. Very good. Uh, next item is reports. And we will begin with Kristen Wickstead. Okay. I'm not muted, right? Okay, just checking. Um, so the Community Affairs Committee is preparing for the town cleanup which will take place on April 30th. So everyone should stay tuned for more information there. The group is, is working on it, um, but it sounds like it's gonna be a really well-organized town cleanup, which I think we can all appreciate. Um, and I would like to say we can applaud our community for all having the same goal in mind when it does come to that ARPA money. Um, I think we all, 100% of us, want what is best for the town. So thanks for to everyone who attended last week's forum and who has written into the board and to my fellow board members who came. Um, we are generating a hopeful and respectful discussion, and I like that a lot. Um, my quote tonight is in honor of well, partly the hockey team and partly that uh, this year being the 50th anniversary of Title IX. 
I sort of stole this from Principal Bevan. So he wrote this great email. So some of this is paraphrased from that, giving him credit it was a good idea. Um, so Title IX prohibits sex-based discrimination. It greatly affects women's sports programs. So it seems appropriate to mention it this week while we're still in the glow of the women's hockey team um, winning the first ever state title for Algonquin. Um, it does include players from other towns. That's also important to mention. I know people know that, but just in case. Um, so it was 50 years ago in 1972 that Title IX became, um, no, wait, sorry. Principal Bevan wrote to our school community that 50 years ago in 1972, our high school only had five sports for girls and many more for boys. Now there are 16 sports for girls and 16 for boys. So my quote is from Dr. Bernie Sandler, the godmother of Title IX. She said, Title IX is probably the most important law passed for women and girls in Congress since women had obtained the right to vote in 1920. And congratulations to the girls hockey team. That ends my report. Thank you, Krista. Uh, Julianne. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, so first of all, I would like to publicly thank all of the people who email us. Um, your, your suggestions, your um, observations are really important as we make decisions. And although we don't respond um, specifically uh, very often, the information we gather is really important. So please continue to communicate with us. Um, and I just also like to thank again, Marilee Borden, John Morrison, Mitch Cohen for organizing uh, last Wednesday's meeting about the um, ARPA funds and you know getting the ball rolling on um, having some public discussion about that. Um, so Cultural Council met with Scott Charpentier to figure out the best place for their um, long awaited public art project. And it was decided that Ellsworth McAfee would be the, um, the best location for their door, their door project. So look for that um, around April 9th. It'd be wonderful to have some public art and um, get the people out. Um, uh, I also attended Water and Sewer where I always learn a whole lot about our, our infrastructure. And um, just to report that the 3G endpoint swap out is going well and the Asabet tank project is going well and you will be um, rest assured to know that your commissioners even went to the tank to, um, to take a look at it. So thanks to water and sewer commissioners. Um, and I'll just end as I always end. Um, I've been requesting that the facilities manager come and talk to us and give us a report on the condition of our buildings. I think as we move forward with ARPA you know, funds and having to decide on, on um, projects and programs, it would be very good to know the condition of our buildings and the and the expenditures we're going to have to have to spend there so that along with a visit to Fort west main street would be much appreciated that ends my report thank you julia scott rogers 
Yeah, in terms of uh, board and committee liaisons, uh, obviously I've been uh, tracking uh, appropriations and financial planning. That's what took me away Wednesday night uh, and couldn't participate in the community discussion, but I caught up in both the write-up and the uh, video of that. Um, in terms of other board liaisons, just want to mention out of the Recreation Department, um, recognize uh, Allie Lane and her citation uh, from the Massachusetts Recreational Association, um, uh, highlighting her organization of the Women's Softball League and uh, the, the stunning accomplishment that was and how well received that, that went. So hats off to Allie in that regard. Uh, and then finally, two uh, town staff that worked uh, over the weekend. Um, Linda, Becca, Jason, all of you uh, to get the material that we have in front of us today. Thank you so much. Um, I know it was above and beyond and with the condensed budgeting cycle that has you know both financial planning and, and appropriations going weekly as opposed to their more stretched out schedule. Um, that's taking its toll on staff. We shouldn't appreciate all that additional work and uh, uh, hang in there a little bit more and we'll soon be to the 25th and we can hopefully take a, a deep breath after that. That ends my report. Thank you, Scott. Uh, Leslie Rutan. Okay, um, I'll try to scoot through this like I did at our last meeting since it was approaching midnight then. Let's see what time is it now, 10.30, so ooh, we're early. <laughs> okay, I first wanted to thank the uh, fire department for their Senior Safe program. Um, um, and this program inspects seniors' homes for the status of smoke and carbon monoxide detectors and changes the batteries if necessary. If anyone is interested in this, please call Firefighter Dallas at 508-393-1537. I think that's a wonderful program. Also, I noticed, um, I have been noticing going through the downtown that the lights seem to be better. I don't know if I'm imagining it, if I'm hopeful. <laughs> no, you're imagining it. <laughs> it, just, it just depends on whether or not anybody pushed a pedestrian light when you went through. <laughs> within the last five minutes before you went through because they don't seem to turn red as frequently let's put it that way i'm able to move through it a little bit more smoothly so i wasn't small sure. small sample size leslie small sample size uh, uh yes maybe um so i didn't know if and and dot had shown up and if anything had been done i didn't know if scott could update us on that uh through the chair uh john's absolutely right Mass DOT came out, they looked at it, the timing is right. And they said, you know, what we said before, you get one pedestrian hitting the crosswalk light and it'll take you three, five, seven light cycles to retime it so that they're all um, they're all synced together. So um, it's it's just good timing on your part, Leslie. <laughs> you know, I, I, just, I just remember, you know, when we did that project, it was a four and a half million dollar downtown uh, traffic improvement project. It was done around 2014 or so 2015 uh and um uh we spent so much time talking with the traffic engineers and just there's so many intersections because as classic a classic new england downtown is where all the roads kind of come together and nothing's at right angles and uh so just trying to give trying to add turning lanes to allow the traffic to more safely you know make their way through the downtown so adding those training lane training uh turning lanes and arrows this was the best they could, you know, the best that they could do. And they did say, you know, in order to make it safe for pedestrians, when they do hit that button, it's going to throw that cycle off for a little bit. So. Okay. 
the best okay. they can do with that configuration. Okay, understood. And as long as they did come out and they have reviewed it and it's kind of at the uh, the best point now in terms of timing, sounds like sequencing. Okay, thank you very much for that. Um, also, um, I had heard some comments about trash bags, um, the supply and maybe the delivery to stores and so forth. And uh, the town engineer did look into that. And I guess there had been an issue a few weeks ago, but things are supposedly fine now. The stores are carrying what they need to carry. Uh, but the town engineer did ask if I would mention that one, if anyone cannot find bags that during normal business hours, they can go to the town hall and get them at the town engineer's office or the town clerk's office. And if you have a defective bag or sleeve of bags, bring this sleeve in to the town engineer's office and he will replace them for you. So I wanted to make sure that was known. Um, let me see. We've already congratulated the, the girls' hockey team, which is wonderful. Awesome news. I actually happened to be in the parking lot at the high school at another event, and the buses came through, and the police escort came through, and it was almost shocking. It kind of sends chills up your spine when you see when you see that. It was awesome. It, it was awesome. All the honking, and then all the parents' cars coming in. It was terrific. So wonderful, wonderful things. Um, and so first, um, I think Titan came. Is that correct? Yeah, first Titan team. Okay. Um, I also wanted to mention that I was one of the uh, selectmen that attended the community uh, forum last week. And I wanted to reiterate what I had said there, which is that because there was a quorum of us that we could not participate um, in any way, because as items are being discussed, some of these things could be ultimately something that we would deliberate on. So uh, we could not participate, but I didn't want that to be mistaken for complacency in any way uh, by board members. We were there to listen and I, I took a ton of notes, um, but I just didn't want that to be misunderstood. We, we were interested, we just could not participate. Um, and my last thing is a question. Uh, do we have any traffic updates at all? How are things going on Bartlett Street? trucks are we hearing what's happening with that anything new and very quiet okay okay all right leslie that's the end of your report okay well i didn't know if john was going to say anything further okay yeah i just no, didn't know, um if, if there were any more issues or whether there had been anything anything new on that okay now uh, that ends my report uh, so my report uh, last week, uh, Tuesday night, I sat in with uh, Town Moderator Fred George, Assistant Town uh, Administrator Becca Meekins, and Chief Liver and uh, Lieutenant Brian Griffin to uh, conduct uh, interviews for police officer candidates. Uh, once again, uh, we had some excellent candidates uh, through, and I'm at least pleased to say that uh, um, it was uh, gender diverse. Uh, once again, so we've only just recently hired uh, uh, our currently only female police officer in the department, and uh, um, there were at least uh, more candidates coming through, which is certainly a different experience that, than what I've had in the past when I've sat in on those interviews, so I'm pleased to see that there's a greater representation in that regard. Um, 
the outcome will depend on the chief's uh, assessment and uh, uh, of the candidates uh, in making a determination about uh, who to offer. Um, on Wednesday night, as Leslie uh, and Kristen uh, and Julian had mentioned, uh, I was at the uh, forum conducted by uh, Northborough Guide um, to take public input regarding uh, ARPA uh, spending. So uh, it was uh, uh, helpful to me to sit in on that session and hear some of the suggestions being made. Um, I think some of the suggestions uh, were well-reasoned. Uh, I think some other suggestions maybe were without the benefit of other information that some of us on the board may have to understand whether or not those particular suggestions are viable or not. Um, but it was a worthwhile session. And I think tonight here, we uh, have taken a step to, to try to uh, provide a more um, uh, more open structure or something and then have another round of public input uh, um, uh, in the upcoming weeks. Uh, and then finally, uh, earlier this month, uh, I underwent uh, eye surgery, um, not LASIK, uh, uh, cataract surgery. Um, so that was a, a big step. And I'm pleased to say that one of my first outings following recovery was to go to TD Garden and watch the girls hockey team uh, uh, win their championship. So uh, that was, uh, and as they had throughout the playoffs, uh, people may or may not know this, uh, in their corner final game, they won in overtime. In their semifinal game, they won in overtime. And in the finals at TD Garden, they fell behind one nothing, tied it in the third period, and then won in overtime. So <laughs> if you're going to win a championship, that's definitely the way uh, that's definitely the way to do it and make it particularly memorable. So I want to congratulate the girls team. Uh, and I also want to just point out that uh, the girls team, the head coach is Mike Hodge, member of our financial planning committee. And one of the senior captains on the team was uh, Taylor Hodge, Mike's daughter. So in addition to being a team win, it was certainly a, a family event for the two of them that uh, they'll cherish for, uh, for the rest of their lives. <coughs> With that, uh, that concludes my report. John, anything more? Nothing this evening. Okay. Completes public report. I'm sorry, that completes reports. We now move to public comment. Um, if you're connected to the Zoom uh, webinar, you can raise your hand if you wish to be heard. Um, uh, we will invite you in to speak. Uh, we'll ask you first to state your name and address. Um, you will have three minutes to present your questions or concerns. The board will not uh, typically discuss or deliberate uh, the subject matter that you present. If there's a relatively straightforward informational question that town staff can provide an answer to, we will strive to do that. And as always, we ask uh, everyone to conduct themselves in a courteous, respectful, and professional manner. So with that, First up, I have Marilee Borden. Hi there, Marilee Borden, 63 Little Pond Road. Um, I promised not to use my full three minutes tonight. Um, I'm really happy to hear that you will be putting together a public forum about ARPA funding and allowing our community the opportunity to have a voice in this conversation. Um, I'll be on an airplane at that time, so I won't be able to attend, um, but I'll be waiting anxiously to hear the results. 
Um, I just want to ask, I hope that in your outreach and publicity about the event, you'll do targeted outreach specifically to our business owners to invite them to participate. Um, I think it's really critical that we hear their voice in this. Um, and I also want to note that we all know that there'll be a lot of people who would like to attend, but won't be able to due to other commitments. And there will be needs and wants that people may not be comfortable speaking up about in a public forum. So, you know, while it's very clear that we, we know what the needs of the town are in terms of capital projects, I have not seen evidence that we really know what the post-pandemic needs of the people in the community are. Um, so I urge you to also reach out via survey to both residents and to business owners and that you be sure to ask questions that really allow us to learn about the physical, financial, and mental health of our residents and of our businesses and business owners um, after this pandemic. Thank you. Thank you, Marilee. Uh, anyone else who would like to offer public comment? Seeing none, thank you. Public comment is concluded. Uh, new business. Uh, first item, we have approve and execute the warrant annual town meeting. John? Uh, you're muted, John. I never mute myself. <laughs> I was coughing. Um, so uh, the warrant has been uh, finalized, been reviewed by town council, uh, contains all the, the final uh, budget numbers and uh, actionable items. There is one change I wanna draw your attention to, um, and that is article 21. Article 21 was originally in there from the school department, and it was for um, purchase of a, uh, a redundant hot water boiler for the Algonquin Regional High School. And uh, the superintendent uh, decided to pull that. They're looking at uh, some alternative funding sources. So uh, he asked that that, that that article be removed. Over the weekend, I was working with town council to finalize the warrant. Uh, and um, one of the things that we discussed was for West Main Street. And uh, as you know, the town's window uh, is in the 40th year to take that property back. So that window doesn't start until May of 2022. And so in talking with council, uh, we could wait, but, uh, but we thought it would be advisable for the board to take uh, an article to town meeting that authorizes the board of selectmen to, uh, to reacquire that uh, facility. Whether or not we use it for a municipal purpose or sell it, whatever we decide to do with it, I think is irrelevant from the fact that uh, it comes back to the town and we want to take it back. Uh, so even though uh, we're not in that window yet, this would be preemptive and allow the board then uh, to make that move. It also gives us a chance then to start talking to the owner and put the paperwork and the things together that needs to be done uh, during the course of the year uh, to take the, the property. So this, this article just authorizes the board uh, to then uh, reacquire the facility. It does not make a determination as to what we do with it. Um, and working with uh, Becca Meekins, uh, we met last week, uh, working on finalizing the RFQ for the consulting uh, for the consultants to do the um, town hall feasibility study to look at renovating 63 Main Street, uh, looking at four West Main Street, and uh, and potentially building new. That was the uh, 
the um, scope. Um, so again, that is related but separate from this. So this article just allows us to reacquire the facility. Uh, there is a, an appropriation in there of $10,000, but that's subject to whether or not maintenance has been done on the building and, and a few other things. So other than that, uh, the warrant is complete um, between now and uh, when it would be posted, uh, which is, I believe, April uh, 11th, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, between now and then, we'll complete the booklet. Uh, one of the things that we've done, and, and I think makes sense for us to continue to do this year, is uh, uh, we've included, in when we had our outdoor meetings, we had a consent agenda, working with the moderator, and we also had the motions included. So if we can get the motions completed, included in the booklet, uh, we don't have to listen to the moderator read these very long, cumbersome motions. And then people can also see what they're actually uh, voting on. So it takes a little while to get that booklet together in that final form with the, with the motions, uh, but that's what we'll be working on uh, next. So at this point, it would be appropriate to uh, vote to, um, to post the warrant, knowing that it won't be posted actually until the 11th. Thank you, John. Uh, Kristen Wickstead. As a first time voter of a warrant, I have a question as a person who goes to town meeting. Um, why is the, like the, the second to last and the last questions, the citizens petition to change town meeting to Saturday at 9 a.m. and then the Gold Star Parents petition, um, they call that the Brave Act, right? Um, why are those last? Well, is there any reason John, for that? If you want, citizen petitions uh, uh, go on last. It's the board's, uh, you know, it's the business of the town uh, uh, going through, beginning with budgets, capital, all of that zoning, and citizen petitions are have always gone on at the at the end. Um, do we have to do it that way? I would not be inclined to set a precedent by changing it up for any particular kind of warrant article and in so doing perhaps expressing preference for some versus others. Well, um, so here's my reasoning. May, okay, so I'll just focus on the changing the time one. Um, a lot of the reason that the people wanna change it um, to Saturday morning is because, um, say they, you know, they can't stay out late because they're either older folks and they don't like to drive really late or, and it's really frankly not safe or, or they're parents with little kids and they have to get home because as the parent of a high school kid who could potentially be babysitting that night, I don't really want him out till 11, 1130. Um, I'd like him home at about 1030 or so. And a lot of times town meeting is really fun and exciting and it goes on and on. And these articles end up happening quite late. So the people who would, they would mean the most to might have to leave. That's, that's, I'm just trying to well, make it. And, and in recognition of that concern, what we approved last year was to change the start of town meeting to 6 p.m. Right. Oh, okay. And, yes. and set an ending time of 10 p.m. So right. We've kind of slid the, the time slot earlier, uh, okay. at least to some extent, and there should be 
more opportunity, I think, for more people uh, to attend throughout that session as opposed to going to 11 o'clock when, when it's uh, later. Right. Um, okay, and that's the same this year, 6 p.m.? Well, it's it's the change we, it, this that's is the first law. year we're actually we implementing vote on that. it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I just read the yeah. motion more carefully. Okay, so, right. well, I guess if that's how, that's how it's yeah. done, that's how it's done. Thank you. Yep. Thank you, Krista. Uh, any other questions or concerns about the warrant? Uh, Scott Rogers. Yeah, John, I had a technical question or what may be a technical question and, and tell me if it's not even uh, appropriate discussed. Um, but on Article 43, am I reading the text of that correctly that the proposal is to make it retroactive to 2019? And if we don't want to get into discussion of the of a particular article, I, I hear you, but I'm just we we take the petition as written, right? Uh, forty. Uh, yeah, the town you have no authority under the law to modify a citizen's petition in any way, shape, or form, even if it has grammatical errors. That's what goes into the warrant. Okay, and if I interpret this one, they're asking for retroactive to 2019. That's what was submitted. That looks good. Okay. Um, and then you said um, the practical posting becomes April 11th. Um, yes, I'll, it, it sounds like then the planning board might be able to get in changes then that they have from there. No, this is it. No. This is your warrant. Uh, the only thing that will happen between now and when we we uh, uh, post it uh, is just that we're going to, we'll try to flush out the full booklet with all of the attachments okay. and okay. the financial uh, financial planning committee's report is usually in there sometimes appropriations in there if it's ready uh, that type of stuff to put the booklet together this is the warrant that's it any other changes after uh, tonight uh, will be made on the floor of town meeting gotcha there and then uh, finally what was the oh the um, personnel handout That'll be yes. on the website. I had a little trouble finding that. I didn't know if it had. Yeah, uh, I think uh, Becca's working on that right now. Okay. So that's the um, that we're wrapping up that class comp study this week, hopefully. So that's the plan. Perfect. And since it's referenced, then we can close tonight and not to add, not have yep. that uh, posted. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. Uh, Julianne. I think I read somewhere that all of those materials will be available at the library and town hall. Is that correct? Yeah, we'll make everything available when it's all as we package everything up online. Could we well. make it available yeah. at the senior center also? Yeah, we typically we typically make everything available at the town hall, library, and the senior center. And usually, when uh, when we get to wrapping up the full the full. Uh, binder the budget book with everything in it we make hard copies available at those locations as well so people can come and surf them it's online as well but if people want to see a hard copy that's fine too great thank you you're welcome thank you julian uh any other questions or comments seeing none do i have a motion julianne yes you do mr chairman 
I move the board vote to approve and execute the April 25th, 2022 annual town meeting warrant. Second. Moved by Julianne Hirsch, seconded by Scott Rogers. This is a roll call vote. Kristen Wickstead. Aye. Julianne Hirsch. Aye. Scott Rogers. Aye. Leslie Rutan. Aye. And I, Jason Pro, vote aye. Carries unanimously. Next item is approve and execute the warrant for the May 10th, 2022 annual town election. We have that in our packets. I'm trying to scroll the wrong document here. Uh, John, do you want to talk about this while I'm scrolling? <laughs> well, it's it's your it's the warrant for the May 10th uh, annual election as submitted by the uh, town clerk. It just needs your execution. Well, that's pretty straightforward. Yes, indeed. Uh, any questions by the board? Seeing none, do I have some, a motion? It has some very fancy uh, language yes. there. It's like old English. If you really read the fine print, kind of funny. It, but anyway, I'll give you your motion. Um, I move the board vote to approve and execute the May 10th, 2022 annual town election warrant. Second. Moved by Kristen Wickstead, seconded by Scott Rogers. Any discussion? Seeing none, this is a roll call vote. Kristen Wickstead? Aye. Julianne Hirsch? Aye. Scott Rogers? Aye. Leslie Rutan? Aye. And I, Jason Pro, vote aye. Uh, any other business to come before the board? Nothing tonight. Nothing more. Thank you all for participating. Staff members, appreciate your presence here on the line. Uh, do I have a motion to adjourn? So moved. I have a motion by Leslie Rattan. Second. And a second by Kristen Wickstead. We'll call vote, Kristen Wickstead. Aye. Julianne Hirsch. Aye. Scott Rogers. Aye. Leslie Rattan. Aye. And I, Jason Perot, vote aye. We are concluded. Thank you all very much. Good night. 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 Good night.